Hey, you're listening to Bring Me the Axe. I'm Brian White, one and half of this morbid equation, and I'm joined by my co-host and actual brother, Dave White. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Oh, hi. Uh, I'm uh, I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. Still sitting around here, waiting on annual gift-giving, man. Mm. Uh, and uh, I've been watching all my Christmas movies this yeah. year. I've only got one left. Gotta, gotta watch It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I, what, you know what? Uh, what do you got? What do you got Christmas movies? You know, I, I am honestly... I am not much of a Christmas movie person. I got a couple. I'm really more of a Christmas music person. Okay, weird. Uh, I know it doesn't. I, it doesn't seem thing, but like I love the. I like for all the schmaltz and and sentimentality of it. I love the kind of like old timey, like silver screen Hollywood Christmas. So like, if I do have a movie at all, like I. A, a Christmas story is the obvious one. I watch it all like every year. And I, I've probably seen that movie more than I've seen most movies. Cause I remember when we were kids, we watched it to such a point that dad hate, like ended up hating it. It, it was weirdly ubiquitous in the eighties. <laughs> it was, and it's still, it still is. I think USA still does that. Like 24 hours. Does thing. it? And I don't get, cause it is, it's a pretty dated movie. Yeah. I mean, there are but, parts of that movie that are pretty offensive at this point. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but it is it is objectively – no, it's not objectively the funniest movie ever. But for me, it's like the funniest – one of the funniest fucking movies I've ever seen. I, I, I still laugh at it like as though it's the first time. So there's that one. But also, I, um, I really love White Christmas. Bing Crosby? Yeah, yeah, Danny Kay and fucking Rosemary Clooney. It's a, I, I don't know. I, I love that, like that kind of image of Christmas with the, you know, fucking crooners and and you know just schmaltzy sentimentality. That's that's the sort of thing I'm into. But I, I honestly, I don't really get into Christmas movies that much. Oh, here's what I've noticed. I, I am, I try to force myself to enjoy holidays. Um, because I am curmudgeonly otherwise. <laughs> so I really push myself to get into things. And I, because I watched so many Christmas movies and this year in particular, this year, Christmas horror seems to be, and maybe it's just cause I'm paying attention to like uh, social media horror people or whatever. It seems like there is a shitload of them, but they all look like they truly suck. <laughs> like so, they just look cheap and and awful and like jokey in a way that's like if you're not gonna take this seriously or at least be sincere about this why should i yeah that's that's a solid point and i i you know i'm a, I'm a lot more plugged into social media than you are and even i'm noticing it more than in the past and maybe it's just because like in the last couple of years like there has been a shitload of christmas horror movies made but just upon, you know, uh, just from a surface glance, none of them really seem all that interesting to me. Oh, they're the same fucking movie over and over again. Santa Claus is a killer. Okay, well, I've seen that a hundred times now. Or, or it's Krampus. Yeah. And, and there's like, there's one really good Krampus movie, but you know, it's called Krampus. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. The rest, the rest of them, not terribly interesting to me. The shit that came out in the 80s, Really, really weird. Nothing like the stuff that's being released now. And I think yeah, because it's really dark stuff. Like very... it's you know, and they're not. It's not all you know. There is uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, obviously. Yep. yep. Um, is the Silent one Deadly. where it's like, see, yep, Santa Claus is a killer in this. Uh, that's that's fine. That's like the one. The rest of them though are like different 
uh, stories like uh, Christmas Evil. You just watch this guy fall apart for like uh, an hour and a half, and it's really weird and that one, really dark. That one is probably my favorite of the bunch. I think I've, I'm planting a flag on that one. Is that Christmas Evil is my favorite Christmas themed horror movie? It's pretty good, but they're also like uh, they they don't none of them are jokey about it. Like they're not really, with the exception of uh, Silent Night Deadly Night. Yeah, some that of one them, is a they, little tug in cheek. Yeah, they've got a they've got a some they have a sense of humor, but they're very oblique. It's yeah. not now where it's like in your face, we're being funny. Yeah, it's like, just, look, uh, gingerbread men are killing people. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Does everything have to be a fucking trauma movie? <laughs> and don't get me started. You don't, you know how I feel about trauma movies. I yeah. cannot stand them. So, oh, yeah. J- J- Charles Band is a ginger dead man guy, though. Okay, but Charles Band, and I, I don't like that movie either, but I, I have more respect for Charles Band. <laughs> yeah, I think I do too. So, I got a question for you. Mm. Where did you put the baby? <laughs> What your mother and I must know is. <laughs> oh, God, these fucking phone calls are awesome. Oh, they're the best. I feel like we have been doing those lines at one another just forever now. But this is a movie that I came along to late. So, uh, yep. yeah, let's. here's the preamble. Uh, we practically grew up in neighborhood video stores and the steady diet of utter garbage that those shops provided us with continues unabated to this day. There's nobody else I enjoy chopping it up. With more about trashy Christmas movies than Dave. Just before we get into it, here's a little housekeeping. If you want to keep up with us between episodes, you can also find us on Instagram at Bring Me the Axe Pod. And Dave's over there at That Queer Wolf. Mm-hmm. We've also got a sweet website now at BringMeTheAxe.com. You can listen to all our past shows there and read the transcripts. You can also contact us directly at BringMeTheAxePod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions. Do let us know if there's a movie that you love and would like to hear us give it the business. And lastly, if you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on YouTube. Oh, do that. What's it? Do that. Oh, yeah, do that. Definitely do that. We're also on YouTube now. You can search us by name and subscribe if you prefer to consume your podcasts that way. And you'd be doing us a favor by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So, God damn it, get to it. Tis the season. Yeah, it's your Christmas present to me. If you If you do one thing for us this year, give us a five-star review on either of those platforms. Uh, and if you listen on on YouTube, you do us a favor, give the episode a like and leave a comment. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, you know, we've been really kind of chatting it up on Instagram lately with a, a whole bunch of you. And uh, it's a lot of fun. You guys are the best. So just want to get that all out of the way right at the top of the show because. Yeah, and that shit really matters, apparently. I, I do not know anything about technology. I try to stay away from it at all times. Um, but my understanding is that these uh, the algorithms mm-hmm. enjoy when people engage. Yeah. It's very important. It it, it uh, helps get the word out. Yeah, yeah. Like it tells all of these sort of like mindless systems that like, oh, people like this thing and therefore I should serve this to more people. So the more that you engage with us, uh, the more people descri- uh, discover uh, discover us. So yeah, like techn- that- technology, isn't it a great thing? <laughs> Sometimes it's a little terrifying. Like there are times when I'll, I'll, I'll you know, sort of be served up something by the algorithm. And it is scary how well these systems know me sometimes. Like, it's a little unnerving at times. But because you're just like, you're just like sitting on your phone. You're like, you know what? I actually would like those shoes. Thank you, Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's it does us it does us a great service if you if you engage. And uh, and it's fun, too. Like I some of you guys like I've been chatted up with in our comments and just in instant messaging on, uh, you know, the direct messages on Instagram and y'all are uh, a riot. So. Keep it coming. I love hearing from you. So now, 
Let's give you a taste. My mother's taking a place up at Mont Holly's. Anyone else want to come? Yeah. Sounds like fun. Great. How about you, Claire? Uh, no thanks, Barb. I've made some other plans. Jingle bell, 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 Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lambakai? They could use a little of this. Yeah, I was supposed to meet my daughter here. Her name's Claire Harrison. Do you know her? I'm sure you'll find her at the fraternity house. Have you seen Claire today? No one knows where she is. No, not since last night. Hello? Hello? Some of the girls are over here today, but I haven't seen Claire. Well, what the hell are you planning to do about it? 90% of the time, girls are reported missing from the college. They're at a cabin somewhere with a boyfriend. A high school girl's been murdered. Claude? Claude? don't think it could be peter well he's obviously upset about something i'd like to talk to him can you tell me where i might reach him the caller is in the house come on this is a sorority house not a convent you can't rape a townie don't like it Ding, fries are done. Ding, fries are done. Ding, fries are done. <laughs> Would you like an apple pie with that? Oh, uh, that is, that's a really Claire focused uh, trailer. That's a lot of Claire in that one. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that usually you know I, I, trailers are kind of tough on an all audio medium, which is why like I'm always trying to pick out something that's got a lot of dialogue in it or some voiceover. That is not the original theatrical trailer, obviously because the music is super modern and stuff. Uh, but the original theatrical trailer for this movie is like almost five minutes long and it's mostly music and screaming and it just did not really work out for this. So I found one by a YouTube user named Rafael Araujo who cut a trailer to modern standards a bit better for our purposes. I believe that that one coincides with the 2019 remake. And so it's stylistically consistent with that one. Uh, but uh, it's it's a little it's a little bit better, but it gives you it definitely gives you a, a sense of what this movie is is about, and I think much better than the other one because I had a really hard time paying attention to the long one. Have you have you not seen the remakes? No, no, I got I got notes about that. Like, there's two. This movie's been remade twice, uh, which is re- kind of weird. I know, like, yeah. So this was remade in 2006 by X Files guy Glenn Morgan. And then it was remade again in 2019 as a Bloomhouse thing. I've not seen either of them. I'm not terribly interested in seeing either of them. Yeah, I'm not just, a remake person. Uh, and I, I just haven't seen them just for no particular reason. My understanding is that the last one she tried, the director, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she tried to really kind of overhaul it and make it a newer thing. Yeah. 
Uh, and that my the sense that I get is that that did not go over well with uh, the bros. Uh, yes, if from what I, I read the synopsis of it, and it sounds like a lot of uh, it's kind of like how when we did 2018 Halloween, that one fell right in the middle of all of that Harvey Weinstein shit. And so Me Too was really kind of on the mind. And that's another kind of like horror movie for that vibe. You know, it's about, I think the girls all kind of fight back. There's no, you know, it's not like a set them up and knock them down move body count movie like this one is. It's, it's a whole, it's a whole different thing. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not terribly interested in it. This one really does the job. Quite well. I, I see no reason to remake anything. Yeah, there's got to be shitloads of people out there who are writing good stuff. Maybe make some of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thankfully, we seem to have left that thing. You know, like, they, they still remake movies, but just not as often. It seemed like, especially when the first one, the first remake, so the 06 came out, it seemed like there was about 10 years where... It was nothing but remakes. There was nothing but remakes. And remakes of weird movies. Yeah, like there were a few obvious ones, but like all uh, they they remade The Hitcher for, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you know, uh, that old classic. Yep. Which again, that's a great movie. Uh probably, and it's a deeply gay movie. I have not seen it through that light. Oh, uh, maybe, very much so. Maybe we're gonna have to do that one then. But uh yeah. So, uh, warning before we get rolling, we're basically going to talk about this movie from beginning to end. Spoilers to follow. You have had since 1974 to see this one. You have had so. 50 years, and if you haven't seen it, go out and see it. It is the greatest movie ever made. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Santa help you if, you, uh, if you've not mm. seen it. So, let's do, uh, let's do some facts here. The year was 1974. 1974. Year of our Lord Jesus Christ. And other movies released that year, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, little known picture, uh, few, pe- few people have seen it, yep, uh, big deal, kind of changed everything. Uh, Phase 4 also came out that year, Saul Bass. Uh, Alien Ants. Alien Ants, yep, it's very, very strange movie. Uh, also that year, It's Alive, awesome. so Killer Mutant Baby. Great, uh, great score to that one. Yep, and... That's right, Bernard Herman did that. I think it's his last score. <laughs> I believe it is. Weird how so many of these, so many people go like they go out with their swan song being really bizarre stuff. Like Raúl Julia's swan song was Street Fighter. Yeah, it's yeah. a hard one. Yeah. Uh, also in 1974, Phantom of the Paradise. Yep, love it. Love it to death. Probably gonna do it at some point. Mm-hmm. Brian yeah. De Palma, bit of a problem. That movie, not a problem at all. <laughs> not a problem at all. Just delightful from from beginning to end. Uh, and rounding it out, the made-for-TV sensation, Bad Ronald. Bad Ronald. Uh, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I've i seen it once. I don't really remember much of it, except that it's about a kid who lives in a girl's wall. And uh, it's got a really funny title, Bad Ronald. It's, it's very interesting in the context of horror, because this was at a time when Texas Chainsaw Massacre, well, The Exorcist was the one that really uh, kicked off the modern horror movement i guess yeah and because that was bringing younger people back to the theaters the television industry was like clamoring to find ways to keep people at home to watch tv so they were like hey what if we made a bunch of like uh kind of teen focused horror movies 
And so you get these things that are, a lot of them are adapted from novels, but they're really fucking weird movies. Yeah. And they're weird stories. That's why throughout the 70s, there's just a shitload of supernatural and horror movies, made for TV movies. And some of them are are kind of good. Some of them are very much not good. I love them all. <laughs> yep. Yep. That is, uh, that's, that's adequate. The 70s was a decade fueled by cocaine. And, and so there's a lot of really bad ideas on television. But it's like, it's fueled by cocaine and a desire, like a creative desire. Like that gets beat out of everybody by the 80s. The 80s pretty much destroyed America. Oh, but yeah. It wasn't dead yet in the 70s, so you've got people getting tons of money to do weird shit. Oh, sure. Yeah, Battle of the Network. It also takes them like nine years to do it. Yeah, Battle of the Network stars, and uh, everybody there was everybody had a, a variety show. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a decade of the Osmonds, so yeah. Crazy shit. The 1970s was kind of awesome and kind of shitty. Yeah, it was also pretty terrible. <laughs> so let's talk cast and crew here. The director is a man named Bob Clark. Mm, yeah. Yep. It's a hell of a director with a ton of garbage on his resume. And, yeah, he uh, really, he kind of just stopped trying at some point. At a certain point, like, I think everybody reaches a point where they're like, okay, I've made my statement, but I've still got to keep working. So they yeah. keep just, like, making making crap, you know? But, uh, yeah. I, you got to wonder, though, like, is it a, a matter of the world had sort of moved on a little bit, but he hadn't, like... You know, because he has he has made some uh, sort of decade defining films, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better description. Oh, sure. And and then by like, I don't know, 1985, it was sort of like, did the world audience shift away or did American audiences shift away from stuff like Porky's and Christmas Story? Yeah. You know what it was is it was the Steven Spielberg effect. Uh, yeah, I can see that. You know, um, they were still they still made sex comedies like well into the 80s but porky's was the one that really kind of planted the flag and it wasn't definitely wasn't the first there were you know there were sex comedies before that but that was the one that i think really kind of sticks out in people's memory it landed at a very particular time it, but it fell out of favor very quickly because it is deeply misogynistic it very very much so yeah which is interesting because it was made by Clark. Yeah. And you could say that this movie. He didn't write it though. Okay. And so, I mean, it's just a matter of people being like, uh, it's, it's a, a kind of institutional misogyny that you just don't notice. Yeah. And then years later, you're like, uh, like, you know, someone was probably like, Hey Bob about that movie. And he was probably like, mm, okay, I guess I can see that actually. And if Bob, if it's Bob Clark, he almost certainly refused to see it, but he's pretty <laughs> steadfast in his defense of his films, which for better or worse, I guess. Yep, but that. it's one of those things where you just don't notice it until the world changes enough that you can be like, oh, I get it now. I yeah. see why you're all so upset about this. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's just that it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. It's just that this Black Christmas came before Porky's, yep. and it is remarkable in that it's a movie that's obviously, it's a prototype for the slasher movie, but- you know, and again, like a lot of these slasher movies, the victim pool is majority women. Uh, in this case, nearly all of them. But there is a an interiority to all of them. There is yeah. a, a a depth and dimension to all of the women in this movie that other the other slasher movies do not have. Uh, and it's very interesting that 
he, you know, it, it has that sort of attention to detail. Because, like, when Carpenter made Halloween, which, you know, has a lot of direct ties to this movie, he also made sure that the girls in that movie had the same dimension, but he mm-hmm. made sure that Deborah Hill wrote it. And, like, yes. there's none of that in this. It's This is all... Uh, it's Clark and who's the other guy? Roy, Roy Moore, Roy Moore. So yeah, it's, it's a very, it's very interesting in, in that respect. Uh, other movies, other slasher movies, other horror movies do not afford it. They're it's women, the, the sort of same kind of range. And, and, and it's a, I mean, it's a big gamble too to take a movie that is, it's already going to be a risky movie because this is, um, this is sort of like coming off of uh, Rosemary's baby starts everything in 69. Then you get The Exorcist in 73, and that fucking breaks everything open. That's really what kicks off modern horror. Then you get Texas Chainsaw about, I don't know, six months or so before Black Christmas. So there isn't a long line of things to draw from. And even this movie doesn't really draw from a tradition of horror. It really comes from a tradition of uh, police procedurals, thrillers, um, mysteries, stuff like that. Uh, There's even sort of a, a love story element in here. There's drama. It's not, it doesn't really come from a horror tradition, but he's taking an even bigger risk by, by really making a movie about women. Yeah. Because that is what this is about. This, your killer doesn't even have a name. I mean, he theoretically <laughs> has a name, but he's, it's Agnes. It's me, Billy. Yeah. You just hear someone shouting names. You don't know if that's actually his name. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you, there is, there, there was a backstory written for the purpose of the movie, but yeah. it's never included in the movie. Yeah. Um, but you get so you get a movie that is basically about a bunch of women and their relationships, and eventually they start to get murdered. But you know, and, and with regard to the newer one about like, oh, will they fight back? Well, they didn't fight back in this one because they didn't know there was a killer in the house. It's right. a lot like Halloween, where it's like, well, she's the final girl. It's like, no, she's the only one who kind of knows something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Jess in this movie kind of knows something's wrong. That's why she doesn't end up getting murdered. She almost gets murdered, but she doesn't. The rest of them do because they have no idea that someone is trying to kill them. Ooh, okay. So I don't want to blow it out, blow it out, like the, you know, blow the ending right away. But you think she comes out in the end? Well, she's alive. Okay. Okay. She lives to the end of the movie. All right. Well, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that at the end. Um, but getting back to Clark, personally, I th- I personally think that he was a genius director, like a real, actual, like film or st- really more of a storytelling genius yes. in terms of like the sort of visual storytelling methods of making film because he understands the power of subtlety and has a, a diabolical attention to detail and you see it all over this movie. It was storyboarded like crazy, which is why so much of it sticks the landing. He's also, I think he was particularly proud of this movie because everything that he had tried to do up to this point, you can see little bits and pieces of what he's going for. But I think this is the first time he's like, I finally got, I have the resources, I have the cast, I have the crew, I can finally do what I want. And he he effectively does what he had set out to do, which is represent these women, tell this story that's kind of a mystery novel. He really thinks this is like a fucking solid mystery. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not. Uh, but he really sticks to this. Like it's a real <laughs> twisting turning and like, okay, buddy, it's, it's a pretty transparent story. Actually. Yeah. When we, when we get there, cause there's a big misdirect throughout the movie that yeah. I am sure he thought he thinks it is brilliant. Was and great. it's like, get, you are overplaying your hand from the moment this guy shows up on screen. <laughs> yeah. He is the reddest of herrings. Yeah. Yeah. But I, he does. I think he does feel like this was the first time he really got, 
to, to see his vision through uh, to the way he wanted to. Right, because this is definitely, this is somewhere, this movie lands, uh, not in the middle, but towards the middle of his career, actually. Because yep. he had this, made, before this, he's made Deranged, he had made Death Dream, yep. uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. There's one more, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, um, and those definitely, those are definitely consistent with low budget sort of cheapo horror movies. Of, I mean, of children shouldn't era. play with dead things is like almost unwatchably bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's find- got some campy elements that are a little bit funny. The other two I think are, they're okay. They're not great. Death dream. I, I, I like death dream in theory. Uh, in practice, I find it a little boring. Death dream is really one. It's one of the, it's interesting because it's one of the first movies that directly, challenges the kind of pro America pro Vietnam position because it is very much, it's the monkey's paw essentially. Mm -hmm. And these people get their, their dead son back from Vietnam and he comes back to life. And it's the movie is really kind of a metaphor for the war and what happened with the fallout of the war. Yeah. Which is a bold thing to do in what, 1972 or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make it, uh, fun to watch or easy to watch. It's still a, pr- a bit of a slog. It's not a great movie, but no. it's it's significant and it's interesting for that reason. Yep. So here's some uh, here's some cast. Olivia Hussey. Yep. Queens. Queens. One and all. Uh-huh. <laughs> Burst out of the scene in 1968 in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. She's the prototypical fr- uh, final girl, and she's still semi-active in Hollywood after nearly two decades of voice work. If you grew up in the 1980s, you have absolutely seen Romeo and Juliet. It is like the fucking movie that always got put on in like when you had like a substitute teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird because it has like a bunch of nudity in it. It's also just a really boring story. Mm. Uh, And Franco Zeffirelli was a creep. Yep. Yep. But yeah, they used to show this shit everywhere. They absolutely did to me when I was in high school. They rolled the they rolled that that video card into the into the classroom. And I was like, ah, fucking awesome. I could just space out. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Just draw the Anthrax logo on my backpack over and over again. (laughs) So she apparently took this job because a psychic advised her that she would act in a Canadian film that would be very successful. And that is a good reason. Whenever a psychic tells you to do something, you should do it. Yep. Yep. So Black Christmas was a bit of a dud on release, but the psychic wasn't wrong in the long run. So it's just you got to consider your timeline, I guess, Olivia. Uh, taking up, uh, picking up a little support on that. We got Margot Kidder. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Iconic. My, act. my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> Everybody loves Barb. Because she uh, fucking nails it. She's so good in this. Yeah, she is uh, the iconic 70s actress for me. Like I, I of yep. there, are, there are many actresses who I very closely associate with the 70s. And it's, it's her because of this movie and the Amityville horror and Superman. Uh, apparently, her drinking in this movie was intended to be received as comedic, but maybe it's just me. But there's something that's very tragic and painful about her character. I think that's that is a the one of the things that we can revisit a little bit later. But that's one of the sort of seventies things about it is like, isn't it funny that she's an alcoholic? Well, no, not really. It's actually contributes to the tragedy that is her life because she is, I think, probably the most fleshed out character in this movie. You have the uh, most information. Her and Claire, yes. I think, are the ones you know the most about. Yeah. And you, you, she's a very sympathetic. But she's also a monster to the end. Uh, all the Like, all the way. She's a very, very bitter, very angry character. I mean, she's not like Judy in Sleepaway Camp, but, like, nope. you, she's pretty fucking mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
But I uh, like I mean in the same in the same light though, like Mrs. Max drinking and Mrs. Mac one hundred percent because alcoholic. it's comical. Mrs. Max it, drinking is comical. It is done in a way that is like it's goofy and she's like you know pulling bottles of booze out of the bookcase and out of the toilet tank. Barb is just drinking heavily through to the end. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so we've also got Andrea Martin, who awesome. plays yep, she plays Phil. So so in the same way that when we did the house and sorority row, and I had a favorite sorority girl, which was Jeannie. The one also bold, bold and the beautiful. Yes. I uh no 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 the punk rock lesbian. No, no, no. That's your that genie is the kind of bookish one. She's the one whose head ends up in the toilet. Oh, isn't genie the? Uh, how do we know she is nope. alive? Nope, that's Morgan. Uh, yep. No, genie. Uh, the, she's the one that the the frat boys are going to throw into the nasty ass pool during right. The yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, equally and very similar in in sort of theme and tone is Phil, who's like my favorite of the of the sorority girls in this one. Yeah, she's like the middle ground. Like she's she's not edgy. She's not getting drunk with Santa Claus, but she's not so naive either. She's just sort of like, well, she seems nice. I'd hang out with her. Yeah, yeah. She's she's bookish. I think I, I have a type is what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, still quite active uh, actress. She's been on a, a lot of television. Um, she, I think, was a, did a lot of stage acting as well. I think she has a bunch of um, Tony Awards for stuff. Ooh, yeah. Um, she That role was originally supposed to be played by Gilda Radner. Gilda Radner, who yep. turned it down because she got picked up by a Saturday Night Well, she Night didn't Live. really turn it down. She Saturday Night Live came through, and she was like, oh, what am I going to do? And he was like, well, go do that, I guess. And so they had to kind of get somebody on the fly. And I don't, was Andrea Martin on SCTV at the time, or was she still kind of relatively new? Uh, I think, well, see, I think SCTV came out after SNL. Yeah, it's so. like 77, 78? So 76 to 81. Yep. Canadian actress. Is she a Canadian? I think she so. Is. Yeah. She's not I mean, well, <laughs> yeah, right. Don't get my more Canadian than that. And then rounding it out, John Saxon. John motherfucking Saxon. Exploitation movie, every man. Dude, couldn't I mean, say no just to any movie. Just every movie. Any movie you've ever seen probably has John Saxon. Could not say no to anything. He's like Waldo. He might just be in the background somewhere. You don't know. <laughs> yep. Don't. Uh, as a result, he ends up in some absolute classics like this one and A Nightmare on Elm Street. But it really is just a numbers game when you take every role past your way because he's also in Mitchell. Yeah. 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 He's in uh, Hellmaster and it is a terrible film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Couldn't fin- couldn't finish that one. And it's seldom that I just stop a movie and not finish it. So that's g- great job. Hellmaster. So uh, here, here's some notes on this movie. So we, this movie was made on a budget of almost seven hundred thousand dollars, which is the modern which is a equivalent uh, about three million today. And unfortunately, it barely turned a profit, which is just too bad because you know it is objectively a very good movie. Uh, but it, well, its its production history is uh, it has like a, a, a sort of easy production history. It's when it came out that it was a problem because yes, they released so it came out in Canada. Um, in like, I don't know, July or something like that. It was released in October, actually. So it, when it came out, it, you know, it did, I think, pretty, pretty okay in like uh, urban areas. So they release it in the States and it, they again, give it limited release and it does well enough that they're like, all right, we're going to give it, uh, you know, we're going to give it a mod, like a wide release and they do. And it just doesn't go anywhere to the point that like, I don't know if there was just a bunch of other shit that was coming out that same year around the same time. 
that theater owners were like, fuck it, never mind. We don't want it now. Because we got uh, yeah, so Mark, it, just, yeah. it gets pulled pretty quickly. Yeah, marketplace conditions probably had a lot to do with it. Who the fuck knows? I mean, the, the industry is a fickle thing. It was also uh, pretty poorly received critically. Yes, critics fucking hated it. Unsurprisingly, there was a writer for Variety who called it a bloody and senseless mess, which it is objectively not. Uh, a, a white good noted white knight Gene Siskel says that it was indicative of the junk roles women were forced to play in movies. Now Making I will me- tell you, I'm going to tell you because I, we we've talked about this uh, off off air, I guess. Yeah, that I find Gene Siskel's. I mean, I, fuck Siskel and Ebert; those guys suck. Were they good writers? Sure, but they're also assholes. Yeah. Uh, in in a lot of his, I find problems throughout a lot of his criticism of horror. And a lot of his behavior around it. But also in this case, this this comment that he makes feels really misogynistic to me. Well, yeah. Because so- he, says, he says Olivia Hussey and Margot Kidder are reduced to playing mannequin-like co-eds waiting to be stabbed. And that is not what true the fuck? of either one absolutely of not true. So I my thing is he went into this movie because he just fucking hated horror movies. They they Him and Ebert are charitable towards some titles. But, like, the vast bulk of horror movies are just dismissed by these guys outright. So I think that he went into this review. Which is just deeply fucking... unprofessional if you're a fucking critic. Correct. But also, to your point about the misogyny, that's kind of what lies at the heart of the whole online white knight shit that, was, that, that, that popped up kind of when social media became a real mainstream thing. Like, at the same time as it seems like there's a lot of men sort of standing up for women, a lot of what lies at the heart of it is these women are not living up to my expectations. Right. And that's what's happening here. This is, I think they should be playing better roles. Like they don't need, and it's like, well, okay, maybe, I don't know, but like they chose these or needed to do them for whatever reason. They act the shit out of them. They're interesting roles. Like it's just this idea of like, you should be making better movies, little lady. Like, oh, yeah. fuck you. Yeah. Yep. But I mean, and I mean, there was, I mean, there is certainly an institutional misogyny towards like, attitudes towards women in Hollywood are notoriously fucking terrible. They still mm-hmm. are. They've, they, they've just transformed over the years, you know, right. like nobody's, nobody's given anybody any diet pills and shit these days, or maybe they are, who the fuck knows. But like it, it, it it's an, it's an objective. Right. I mean, we don't give them diet pills. We just make them feel like they need to go have plastic surgery until they're fucking 70 years old and look ridiculous. Yeah. It's an objective truth of the, of the industry, but also what fucking Gene Siskel is doing is just as fucking bad. He's just a, a, a different part of the problem. Fuck yeah, I mean, this guy. is the same man who, what he gave out Betsy Palmer's address when Friday the 13th came out. Cause he was basically like, you should all tell her how you feel. And it's like, wow, yeah. you, you colossal asshole. Yep. So he didn't think, yeah, I'm sure he was just like, oh, no, maybe someone will write her some letters. And it's like, or someone will show up at her fucking door, you idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, some people did like it, though. Like, there were some, I did find some reviews, because there were a lot of reviews of this movie. Not like some of the other ones we've done recently, where it's like finding contemporary reviews impossible. But there were some good ones. The The guy from Boston Globe, he he kind of liked it. He liked the acting. He liked the uh, writing. He's, he's called it a taught exercise in terror. He did criticize Margot Kidder's acting, and I I can kind of forgive that because I think if you if you're looking at it in the '70s, it does come across as very hammy. I mean, even if you look at it now, it comes across as a little hammy. But yeah. I think it serves the movie because it it goes it sort of speaks to the character. Yeah. But yeah, yeah some people did like it, just not very many. Yeah. 
yeah, obviously it's been reappraised since, and it's now, you know, a piece of the classic canon. So here are some taglines for this movie. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Love it. Stupid. Stupid, but I love it. Absolutely. Uh, Here's another one. Christmas is coming early this year, and it's murder. They really Mm. leaned into the Christmas in the marketing of this. Which Which is crazy. Because Christmas is not really, it takes place at Christmas. It takes place at Christmas, but it's not like Silent Night, Deadly Night. It is relevant to the story, but it's not like Silent Night, Deadly Night or or Christmas Evil. It's like, it's just the fact that it happens around Christmas. It would be like, you know, 4th of July is coming early. And it's like, well, the movie just takes place in the summer. (laughs) I know, it's it's Jaws you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so here's another one. The sort of Christmas you don't dream of. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause you, you know, you dream of a white Christmas, get it? Uh, yeah. And hey, don't tell me what kind of Christmas I should dream of. You don't <laughs> know me. Yeah. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake, he knows. Now, see, I like that one. Yeah. That one's not too bad. Cause he definitely does. He definitely knows if they're sleeping. He knows if yeah, they're he's awake. In the he, house. Knows, he knows if they're pregnant. That is true. He All right. So he, here's the last, here's the last one. Black Christmas will rock you too. I, I don't understand. That sounds like, is that a German tagline? What is I that? have no idea. It's definitely, I've, it's like, it's like in, when we did Hellraiser and they had that Satan's done waiting one. I like, I I'm love, gonna that's have my to, favorite one. That's my favorite tagline ever. I had to really dig to find a poster that had that, that tagline on it. So I'm probably going to have to really dig to find a poster that says black Christmas will rock you. There were some other ones that were like paragraphs long. I'm like, this is yes. not a tagline. This not is not a tagline. A summary. <laughs> Not a tagline at all. Way too long. That's why I, why I left him off this list. So uh, apparently, this is Steve Martin's favorite movie. Mm-hmm. I love this. <laughs> I love this for him. Uh, Steve Every now Martin. and then I learn things about Steve Martin, and I'm like, you know what? I, I like this guy. I like yeah. this Steve Martin fella. He seems like a, he seems like an interesting character. Because it, it seems like the more we learn about men who are famous in the 70s and 80s, like the less it's like, oh, God, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Now I can't watch that movie anymore. Yeah, you look, you look him up, you pull him up in Wikipedia, and you just scan the page for a controversies section. Yep, yep. Yeah. But no, no, he seems like uh, he's one of the few that sort of made it. Yep. yep. Him and Martin Short, which is probably why they, they pair so well on that murder mystery show. Uh, so Olivia Hussey in interviews also states that this is one of Elvis's favorites, but I cannot confirm that. Um uh, Seems a little outrageous, but he, the movie also drops right in the middle of Elvis's free fall, so maybe. Uh, but also, Olivia Hussey was convinced that she was going to marry Paul McCartney because a psychic told her. So Again, who's to say? You do what psychics tell you to do. Yep. My God. Uh, so yeah, original what a, title. What a weird life she's had. <laughs> Just sailing through life on the words of psychics. Uh, so uh, yeah, original title for this movie was Stop Me. Which is an objectively bad title. Yeah, because it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's not a factor of the film either. Um, he says it on the phone once. One time. One time. He also says a lot. You could call this Agnes, you know. It's me, Billy? Agnes, like, it's me, Billy. Yeah, like, <laughs> call it anything he says once or twice. Yeah. Uh, so in some markets, this movie had an alternative title, Silent Night, Evil Night, which is something I wish these movies would stop doing. Yep. But That's fucking dumb. It's fucking stupid. Uh, but, it was also sp- that there was a TV cut of it that was supposed to be called Stranger in the House. Uh, uh all right. We got gets I don't, to it the- never made it to TV though. 
that. Well, and that for, because uh, Ted oh, Bundy because of Ted killing, Bundy <laughs> started killing ladies. Yeah. Uh, yep. So uh, there is a fan film sequel called It's Me, Billy, that was produced in 2021 by a guy named David McRae and another guy named Bruce Dale. Uh, it's on YouTube. I've seen the trailer. I have not watched it yet. I probably will because it does look pretty good. Uh, but I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, th- yeah, so I am probably I, I'm pretty confident about planting a flag in this movie as the first slasher movie. Because there's yeah. other movies. Yeah, there's other movies before it that also have slasher flavors, but this is the one that really kind of says like faceless killer body count go, you know, like there's, you can draw a direct line to Halloween from this one since Carpenter and Clark were actually like communicating. And in some, by, by some claims Carpenter picked up, Bob Clark's idea for a sequel for this one and ran with it for Halloween. I don't know if I if I buy that. But yeah, you can like you can tell even when Bob Clark tells that story, you can tell he's kind of hedging a little bit. Like at some point, someone was like, "Dude, you got to stop saying that. This is not your movie." And he was like, "Okay, fine, I guess." Yeah, yeah. He says it, but the thing is, when I, there's it's on the the Blu-ray in one of the uh, the in one of the extras where he actually explains that, but he kind of says it with a smirk. So I yeah. think, yeah. Uh, because yeah. his, his idea, he had a very basically, this was the last horror movie he intended to make. And, and yeah. for, you know, because he just wanted to go and try other stuff. He, he was not, Bob Clark is one of the rare ones who started in horror because he liked horror. Mm. Um, but he said that he, he did kind of, someone asked him if he had a sequel in mind or something. And he was like, well, if I was to do one, you know, they would find Billy and he would, uh, you know, get put in a, an institution and then he would get out a couple years later or whatever. And he would go to a town and basically start doing it again. That's about as far as it goes. And like, that's pretty basic. That describes a lot of movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's broad enough that you could apply. <laughs> you can say like, yeah, sure. I, I guess I can see that. Like I'm sure, but, you know, when, when John Carpenter and Deborah Hill sat down to write Halloween, he's probably like, oh yeah, I don't, that's an, maybe I'll work some of that. And maybe that's a place to start. Yeah. Yeah. But it, there's, there's no description in any of what, of what, Bob Clark says so. Yeah, it, it is a, an objective truth, though, that we do not have Halloween as we know it without this movie first. So, and yeah. even like this movie, it is pulling from Psycho. It is pulling from uh, Peeping Tom. It's mm-hmm. pulling heavily from uh, certain Jallo uh, yep. that were kind of out at the time because they they probably would have seen some of them. Or yeah, at least, you know, they would have seen like the Bava movies. Yeah, yeah, because uh, this this movie drops in the middle of the seventies, really at the at the absolute peak of Jallo's popularity yeah. in Italy, and so it, it it does have some some bits and pieces in common with Bay of Blood, which came out a few years prior to this one. Mm-hmm. But like a thing that I I think we we've kind of brought up in the past is like how exposed to Italian movies were like North American filmmakers because like the, it just, it was, everything was very in like siloed at the time. And so like, we didn't have opportunities to take in foreign films in the same way that we do now where like everything's available all the time, but they would have. So, you know, well, well the audience, you know, these are ordinary American would 
not have probably seen most of that stuff unless you lived in like New York and LA. Yeah. But filmmakers would have gone, you know, they would, they, they had to go to, you know, can and pitch their shit to like, Oh they yeah. Would have that traveled around and they would have just sort of been aware of what was happening in, in film broadly, because they still would have had to go and pitch things in, you know, to international distributors yeah. and stuff yeah, like that. that does, so they would have seen stuff. That does make a lot of sense. Cause yeah. Like, cause you know, when, when like George Lucas made star Wars, like so much of that movie is based on Akira Kurosawa's stuff. So like, obviously these guys were seeing these movies in like very specialized houses in, in Los Angeles. So yeah, but there is definitely a very heavy Jallo flavor to this movie. Yeah. Um, Eventually, like it's the killer POV it's, thing is, a, yep. you know, a thing that they use pretty heavily in this. Yeah, because it's really it's really by the time Friday the 13th comes out is when the slasher becomes like a very American thing. Yeah. So, yeah, in this part, it's definitely it's got bits and pieces of, of certain other other cultures, movies and, and this movie. And is, it's also and, I mean, it's just based on two. Well, it's based on the babysitter and the man upstairs. The yes. Urban legend. Um, but it's also based, the, the character of Billy is based on a real person. So it's loosely based on a real person. It was a kid named George, George Webster. He's from Montreal. He's 14 years old. It's 1943. And he murdered his mother with a baseball bat and tried to kill his brother and his sister and a woman who was just like staying, like a friend who was staying in the house with them. Like he went room by room with a bat and just like bashed their heads in. Jesus the only Christ. person he killed was his mother. Um, and so I guess when uh, Moore was working on the story, he thought about that. I think I can't remember why he, he did. I, I think it, like he had, he was pretty young when it happened. And, huh. and so or it, maybe it, he might not have even been born with 43. Yeah. But yeah, he thought about that. And because the, the guy, the kid gets put in an institution for a while and then he just gets out and that was it. Didn't, huh. Nothing bad ever happened after that. But no shit. That is the character of Billy. Ah, uh, yeah. So. The uh, the story, uh, the, or rather, the character of Mrs. Mack was initially offered to Betty Davis, who uh, turned it down, unfortunately. That would have made her a three-time star of Bring Me the Axe if she had done Oh, well, we're, we're coming back to her. Don't you worry about that. Oh, yeah. No, we will never leave. We will explore her. We celebrate her catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, so music is by a guy named Carl Zittrer who set out to make a soundtrack that matched the killer's internal monologue. So there's all kinds of crap stuck in the strings of his, of his piano. And yeah, he's basically just raking either his hands or something across the strings of a piano. Yeah. Cause there's in terms of music, there's, there's Christmas, not a lot of music. In this. There's Christmas music, but most of the score is, uh, and that's diegetic for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mostly like howling wind and that sound of like something being dragged across a piano. And so once he'd record that, he dubbed it a second time and like placed, like he put his finger on the tape wheels as it was recording to sort of warp the sound. And you can really hear that in certain parts and it is fucking awesome. And that's sort of, that was his thing. Carl Zipper worked with uh, Bob Clark quite a lot and with a guy named Paul Zaza, they all yep. kind of worked together on a bunch of stuff. And Paul Zaza was the one who did music. Like he would do you know, standard film score stuff. And yeah. His, uh, his music is very good. Um, also Canadian. And sure. what Carl Zimmer would do is like the, the sound design, the soundscape kind of thing where he would just create noise and he, he would fuck around with like, uh, you know, early electronic stuff. And he was really into that. Yeah. So he did all that stuff. But if you, you can listen to just the stuff he did alone, it's not the kind of stuff you want to listen to. Like I have a bunch of these soundtracks. I've put them on maybe once or twice, 
and they're not listenable because it's just noise. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, but that sound, the sound design of this movie is doing a lot of work and it's just another piece of this sort of Swiss. It is a character in itself. Yeah. Oh, so uh, shall we get into it? Yeah, I just uh, peruse my notes here. Um, Yeah, I think we're. So we open on the Pi Kappa Sigma sorority house where a Christmas party is taking place. First, Jess enters, but then we cut to the janky, wobbly, low angle POV of a man breathing heavily, looking for a way into the house. So I, when I first saw this part, I was just like, why is he like that? Now, I had to remind myself that the steady cam did not exist yet. Yes, yes. Um, but also, apparently, Bob Clark, and I don't know if he's joking. I don't think he's joking when he says this. He says that this guy was always drunk. He'd show up to work drunk. And that's partially why he's so unsteady. And he's like, I had to fire him a couple days later. And I can't tell <laughs> if he's joking or not. I don't think he is. No, because there's also, there's other things that they do. Like, it's not just that it's all wobbly and shit, but like... Yeah, because because it's it takes a few years for us to get the Panaglide, which is what Dean Cundy uses for Halloween, which is why the POV in that is so smooth. But this is definitely just a dude holding the camera in his hand because it is jerky and crazy, and it's weirdly low. It's like if you're if you're doing killer POV, great, but also people don't walk like that. No, it's almost like he was holding the camera at about waist level. Yeah. It's really low. It's very strange. But also, they use the, the 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 lens on it is different. So, like, where everything else in the movie is shot with, like, the appropriate sort of lens you would use for the scene. And the camera's either, you know, it's zooming, it's panning, it's on a track or whatever. Yeah, the this fucking hand- camera moves so much in this movie. Yeah. It is so constantly moving. The the They use, like, a wide-angle lens on all of the sort of Billy POV stuff. Because not only does it sort of tighten everything up it kind of warps shit around the edges. Mm-hmm. So you are basically looking through the eyes of a very damaged individual. Yes. And so, yeah, he eventually finds his way to the trellis, which runs all the way up to the top floor, and he starts climbing, eventually letting himself into the attic. So meanwhile, at the party, we also, get to know that... He gets in the attic. There's a rocking horse in there. Why is oh, yeah. there a rocking horse in a it's, sorority house? There's that attic is crazy as hell. There's a block and tackle up there for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, we have the lay of the land. It's a crowded sorority, but we're going to be primarily concerned with our final girl, Jess, hard drinking Barb, bookish Phyllis, and her boyfriend who looks like MC5's Rob Tyner, yeah. and, and young, naive Claire. And I, I will say the, the economy of this scene is incredible because we learn in such a short amount of time, we learn absolutely everything we need to know about all of these characters in such a subtle way. Yeah. That you, Oh you're, yeah. You're off. You, you, the movie is off and you're like, wow, I know everything about these people now just yeah. based on like four lines. That is a thing that's, that is a thing, a quality of this movie that struck me also the last time that I watched it was this movie runs about 98 minutes long, but it feels like a shitload, ha- like a way more should happen in this movie than is, uh, you know, you would typically stuff into a 98 minute movie. Like mm-hmm. it is, it is very tight and, and gives you a lot to work with, but yeah, like you immediately get a high level overview of who each one of these girls are and what is going on in their lives. And it's snappy. It's God damn it. It's such a good, good way to get us, get us into it. So the phone rings for the first time 
as the killer makes his way down from the attic and sneaks around. Now, this is Barb's mom, who drops some bad news about where she's going to be for Christmas and how Barb is not really invited. Yep, and then Barb says, you're a real gold-plated whore. You know that, mother? (laughs) And I thought, that is an incredible line. Yeah. So, yeah, this clues us into the sad state of affairs between her and her mother, and maybe uh, part of the reason why she drinks so heavily in this movie. And so, yeah. um, Yeah, because her mother, I think, has a new boyfriend. Yes, that's that's kind of what's implied if you're if you're paying attention. So a little a little bit more, you know, partying goes by a little bit more killer sneaking around. And then the phone rings again. And it's the sound that you're going to learn to hate. Uh, But this time it's not Barb's mom. The the sound of the phone ringing becomes so menacing throughout the entire movie. It's really incredible that by the time the movie ends. It's God, goddamn. Does it hit? It, it really lands, and the way that they and they know it too, because they they play, the only thing that plays over the the credits rolling is the fucking phone ringing. Um, mm-hmm. This time, it's not Barb's mom. It's a caller that the girls have come to call the moaner. And so they all gather around the phone to listen to him making all these crazy ass sounds and saying all this obscene shit, while the camera tracks across. Well, their the interesting board. thing about this part too is that. The fact that he has just snuck into their house. Yeah. But they already know who he is. So well, he is, is not my... a newly escaped person. And we find that out a little bit later that he has been creeping around the, the town for a while. Yes. Yeah. So that was my that, thing is I, I, that I missed that initially. I was, I'd always, I kind of wondered about that is, is the moaner and are the, are the moaner and Billy the same guy or is I it just. So. Okay. Cause. Because the character of this initial phone call is not like the rest of them. Uh, well, it, it it escalates. Yeah, because this is him just saying, like, nasty shit to him. And then right before he hangs up, he's like, I'm going to kill you. The in comedy. one of the most chilling lines ever delivered in any movie. Because he is, so the, the voice of Billy is done by three different people. It's Nick Mancuso, Bob Clark, and a woman whose name I can never remember. It's Anne something. Um, and so that's why it shifts back and forth and it sounds like different people from time to time. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really, it's, it's used very well, but when that line comes, so, you know, Barb's on the phone and she's listening to the, the, all the nasty shit he's saying. And the, the camera is scanning from one woman to another. And this is another of that sort of that, the economy of this scene, because you're getting different reactions. Yes, it is. And also, that is a very technically impressive shot because he's so they're, he's they're, like right in front of them. The camera mo- the camera movement is very it's tight on their faces, but it's going from woman to woman, and it's not just like in a line; like it has to go up and then over and then down. So there's also a guy called a focus puller who's sitting there, like drawing the camera's lens into focus for each one of them, because also they're not blocked the same; they're all like different. Mm-hmm you know, distances from the lens. Technically very impressive if you're into that sort of thing. But again, yes, here we are meeting the sorority girls and most of them are going to go away. Like we're really primarily concerned with four of them. Which is the only reason why Christmas is necessary for this story. You have to get all these people out of the house somehow Yeah, for yeah. an extended period. That's the only reason why Christmas matters in this movie. Yeah. But as it's scanning, you're watching them react. And then towards the end, you know, Barb is sort of egging him on and she's kind of prodding him and saying other shit to him. And then the act kind of the, the crazy wild guy act drops away. And he just says, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And that's the end of the call. And it is like deadpan. It is really, really unnerving. Yeah. Yep. So we learned from Claire that a local girl, a townie, 
was recently raped when Barb utters a real nasty phrase. Listen, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it, everybody. If you don't want to plug up yours, if you don't want to hear it, she says, darling, you can't rape a townie. I know I shouldn't like that line, but Jesus Christ, it's fucking hilarious. The way that she drops it is so fucking heavy. And yeah, like, it is it, nasty. It is a mean, mean thing to say. And that's part of this. That's her character. You, you know, you more insight into her character. Yeah. This but also, like, like, one of the things, like, when I was in high school, like, we used to hang around and and we were right up there by UNH. And that very much was an attitude of all of the like student body towards like the fucking psychos and weirdos who lived, who like lived there all the time. Yeah. Like, there's a weird cl- cl- uh, issue of class in this that I don't really think they follow through on. It's sort of a thread they kind of drop and they, never, they don't, it doesn't deliver. But there is a, a question of class throughout this movie that we'll talk about a little bit later because one of the characters is kind of a, a, a signifier of that. Yeah. Yeah. So now Claire, Claire, but also of all the girls, Claire is the one who is most moved by this. So she goes off to to pack for break and now (laughs) enter Mrs. Mack, a walking vaudeville character. And well, one also, of my- before that happens, one, uh, Claire, because um, again, uh, Barb is kind of fucking with Claire. Like you can tell there's some animosity here, but she she doesn't like her. She kind of bullies her a little bit. Yeah. And then I think it's Jess or it's either Jess or Phil says to her, hasn't she had enough trouble fitting in here already? And it, this is another one of those things like this could just be lazy writing uh, or bad editing or something. But I, I think there's more. I think it's just a smart choice to imply there's something about Claire that's not like the other girls. And we get more of that when her father shows up, but it just, you, they never really take you there. They're just like, Hey, you figure it out. You, yeah. You, that's clearly that's cause she's going to die in like five minutes anyway. <laughs> yeah. This movie definitely hits you with enough to sort of feed your mind and your imagination, but leaves a lot of shit off the, uh, yeah. off the, off the, you know, the main screen in a way which, that feels intentional, not lazy. Yes, and that's the thing that I was talking about about the subtlety and nuance. Like every nowadays, you couldn't do that. They would have to explain her entire backstory. Otherwise, you'd have fucking sixteen YouTube videos where it's like Black Christmas explained, and I'm like, why is this even a thing? I- yeah, yeah. But um, suffice to say, like she's just kind of naive. She's probably the youngest in the house. Like that's kind of the the implication here. Barb. She's is very from- pure. She's very like naive and pure. Is the yeah. And Barb is is from the city, and she's kind of a tough chick. So that's that's their whole thing. Now, now Mrs. Mack comes in. She's the house mother, and she's very fucking funny. She's basically Shelley Winters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She is Shelley Winters from the late seventies. Yeah, they and the girls give her uh, like a Christmas gift, and it is just this like fucking ugly house coat. Uh, you can see it on her face. Not loving it, but they they all seem to they all seem to get along and they all seem to love each other. It's it's a very it's a very nice thing. So when she eventually kind of finds her way out of the movie, is it's actually kind of sad. Up in her room, Claire pulls clothes off the rack, leaving a series of dry uh, hanging dry cleaning bags behind, and the camera pulls in tight, and you can barely make it out. But there's the face of the killer behind them, obscured by the bag. It's not which- even really a face; it's just a dark silhouette kind of and you it could be anything chills me to the fucking bone i think this is one of the creepiest moments in any movie that i've ever seen because right she's saying she 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 gets that there's someone in the closet and at first you'd think okay is someone's you know playing a prank or whatever it's a joke but the scene goes on far too long and she's saying who is that who's in there and she's sort of stepping slowly 
towards the thing. And it's like, in, in what circumstance would you be doing that? Because there shouldn't be anyone in your closet. <laughs> Especially the fact that it's not just that there's a closet. There is like a crawl space behind it. Yeah. So there could very well be somebody in there. Because what happens is she hears there's a cat. A house cat named Claude. Except what she's hearing is not the cat. No, she's hearing the killer making cat sounds. Yes. And so that's when she starts to step towards it. But there is a crawl space behind the closet where somebody very well could could be hidden. And as we find out, is fucking hidden. And that's the thing, though, is that we know that, that he's there. She kind of knows that he's there. And she's still going towards it. And it's the, the tension in this moment. And then the way it explodes. Oh, sure. Because I really rough. I'm watching this and I'm doing that thing where I am audibly saying, oh, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't go over there. Is she going to die? <laughs> don't <laughs> don't. Tell me. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, it's it's also this is the very beginning of the way in which Clark treats the killer in this movie, because at no point do we ever really see him. We <laughs> see his legs. We see his eye. We hear. His and even when you see his legs, that's like the most you're going to see of him. Yeah. So you 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 only ever catch him obscured, and, and I don't the know. Use, I think the use of space in general in this, the use of of shadow of noise of space, because up until like the I'm gonna say a little bit more than half, probably three quarters of this movie, there is so much ambient noise, and I think the reason they do that is because when it drops out, then yes. you really notice it. You know how alone you are. Yes, and and the thing is that they, what they what they do is it's that that Carl Zitter stuff because it's when it does drop out and you are become aware of that it's howling wind, yeah, it's or the so, telephone, or the you know, telephone. The, it makes that phone that stark sound of the phone really cut through that silence. And I think yeah. this is one of those moments where she's creeping towards the thing. You you know it's coming. You know it's going to come. This is a fucking horror movie. Of course she's going to die. But the way he. He really explodes he out of explodes the closet and grabs out of the, yeah. in that way that's like, it's it's a little bit like when Bob gets killed in Halloween, where like, we know that, that Michael Myers is going to come out of somewhere and he just bursts out of this closet in a way that you don't ever see him move throughout the rest of the movie. He moves really quickly and rushes him, yeah. pins him to the wall. And that's kind of what happens here is he, he grabs her and wraps the fucking, you know, uh, garment bag around her head. And, but he does it in this really aggressive, startling way. It is a it is a genuinely upsetting moment that I, and I do not find most things scary. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that 100. Like there there are moments in this movie that God, it hits all of the all of the. I'm so fucking jaded when it comes to horror movies that nothing really scares me, and it takes a lot to really sort of shake me. This movie does it without really ever doing without ever doing anything truly truly horrible like mm-hmm. it's it, it's because most- everything is happening just out it's just a, like a little bit out of the frame like it's it's out of the corner of your eye you notice something it's a yeah. shadow that passes it's a phone call everything is just out of reach where you can't quite see it but you know it's there yeah and it, and the thing is is this is a mostly bloodless movie there's a little bit but really not much it's so it, it is not really Which is why all those critics can eat a whole bag of dicks because they obviously didn't even watch the movie. Yeah. You know, it's it is shocking in all of the best ways. God, and I think one of the in, and, and Clark has said in one of the interviews that he wanted the house to feel like a character in the movie. And I think he's very successful, which is why the camera moves so much, because he wants you to feel this familiar place as well. But it yeah. also like it's it's warm and inviting in that very 70s way. 
like it has a lot of wood paneling. It's a lot of sort of like oak. It's like dark stained wood. It yeah. is warm and like has a fire going at one point. Like it feels really warm, but it also feels very menacing because we know that there's someone in this house. And we also now know because they move the camera so much, we know there are so many fucking crevices and shadows and like places where someone can jump out or hide that it it is always going to feel unsafe, even when it feels warm and inviting. Yeah. Yep. Good God. Easily one of the most tense mo- mo- moments in the entire movie. Never loses its impact. Like, I am as moved by it today as I as I was when I first mm-hmm. saw it. It's brutal. It's up close. It's very, very tight watching this fucking poor. Yeah, everything. Guy. These are such tight shots. And everything. there's always shit foregrounded, too, that's other than, than the actor. It's like, you know, we'll, we get a shot, tight shot on Jess's face, but it's like through the banister or through the slats in the, you know, the windows or something. Like, there's always something else between us and them. Yeah. Good man. Yeah. So now, now, actually, I was a little ahead of myself. Now Mrs. Mack gets a gift, as she says about it. I have about as much use for this as a chastity belt. This is a classy lady. Again, just imagine Shelly Winters saying that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So upstairs, we see the killer walking away from the top of the steps as the camera pans up. Now, we only see his legs in shadow. And the slow pan around the hall and up to the attic hatch, ominously closing. Which he is, is going carrying to be, her body as well. Yeah, so there's there's um that hatch is gonna be a recurring motif, and you're gonna fucking hate it every time you see it. The I want you know, the interesting thing about Claire, because she is now, you know, we we see her, she says like six lines or whatever, and then she is dead, but she never leaves the movie. I mean, you no, could argue she keeps that coming she back. She's one of the stars of this film, she's even on the though poster. she's just sitting there. She's because on the poster. We like her father becomes a big like just in the trailer you played. It is very clear focus. This is a lot for a character who's dead within the first 15 minutes of the movie because we never forget that this all of this is really about looking for Claire. They yeah. never really let us forget about that. And that is a, one of the bigger differences between later slasher movies and this one is that that even though she dies, she's still a fully realized character who is there to move the plot along. We never get to forget about her. She's never going to be disposable. Nobody in this movie is ever going to be disposable. We never forget them, even when they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Mrs. Mack, meanwhile, has booze stashed all over the house. In, in, in a very Scooby-Doo-esque way. In a, in a book, uh, in, a, in a toilet tank, behind the, you know, the the bottom of the ad, uh, the closet it's it's everywhere and it becomes like a running a running joke bob also, clark said that he based this on his aunt who i guess had a similar <laughs> a similar drinking problem and would hide I, I don't i'm guessing his aunt wasn't hollowing out a book to put you know alcohol no, but in it but. that is that <laughs> hiding alcohol over the house is like a key trait of an alcoholic yeah. uh, you know as as i as i learned so 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 well but uh on top of that Jess I just keep is, it in the refrigerator. That's like I a nor- like a normal human being. Yeah, yeah. Jess's sweater, by the way, is awesome. It is it is iconic, and i i was uh, I was encouraged and heartened to see so many people wearing that sweater on on social media this year. Yeah, yeah. I, I I've seen ads for it, and I was like, uh, I buy it, but like I don't. I would never personally wear it because not really a, a sweater for men, uh, and I don't know anybody who would wear it. So. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it to uh, to the fans. So uh, the phone rings again, and Jess and Phil brace themselves. But so we already know, like this, it's only the third call 
and in the in the house, the phone is only rung three times, and it's already a source of fear. Yeah, uh, but it's just Jess's boyfriend, Peter. Uh, she's troubled. They need to talk in person. He's kind of a jerk, and he's been practicing his piano shit for the last few days. He says, "I love you," to which she replies, "I, I know." know. <laughs> and again, this is that economy of language again, where it's like. We don't know anything about their relationship, and yet when she hangs up this phone, we know that something is wrong and that it we are going to learn more about it. Yes. Yep. Mrs. Mack, now brushing her teeth, searches for something to wash the toothpaste out with. Not, not wanting water for some reason. This also makes me fucking recoil in horror. So uh, she pulls a bottle of whiskey out of the toilet tank, which even though I know... Oh, no, that's not whiskey. What that is, is it? Pure sherry. Oh no! Yep. Oh yeah. That so, so yeah. That's she's the a, worst of the alcohols. <laughs> she's a real booze hound. Oh god. Uh, she pulls out of the toilet tank. I know that the water in the toilet tank is is clean water, but still, yeah. yeah it's a it's a hard one to it's a hard <laughs> one to shake. No thanks. No thanks. So now Jess goes to check on Claire, but finds her room empty. Now that's because her body is currently rocking in a rocking chair in the attic by the window with the dry cleaning bag still over her head. The bag so is inhaled. A, yeah, she is a, uh, uh, what is her, I can't remember her name. She's in curtains too. Lynn. Uh, yes. Lynn something. I, I, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Uh, let me so she was, I guess, a, uh, a not a, a competitive swimmer, but she was a swimmer. So she is holding her breath because she is breathing it in. She's breathing the bag in so that you can get that, that effect. And she just held her, held it like that for oh, however God. long they needed to get the shot. And then I think they just keep coming back to that same shot. But yeah. That, it's that really is impressive. That, thinking of ways to die, being suffocated is one that really fucks with me. By and, a maniac. Yeah, that one. And just the way that it looks, because whenever we see her and we're going to see her a bunch, it's always like the, the bag is sucked into her mouth. Yep. And she's got this horrible, horrible look of terror on her face, too. But, uh, uh, but and yeah. And I, I think this is one of the weird parts where the movie doesn't quite work. Because if, you know, she just went upstairs like 10 minutes earlier, 15 minutes earlier. And for Jess to then go up and be like, huh, I guess she's gone. Gone where? Yeah, yeah. You're in the house. You would see her somewhere. <laughs> but, yeah, at the end, but again, at the same time, she's nowhere to be found. So... It does, I, I suppose, like, oh, she must have slipped out when I wasn't paying attention. Is, is yeah, there is a lot of chaos going on. Yeah. But uh, I but still I'll, have always just kind of been like, wouldn't you be a little bit curious where she went? <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually she is, but in the moment, not so much. The killer, who we'll call Billy, sings a shrill sort of nursery rhyme as Claire's body rocks in the chair. And we find out uh, something about a, somebody named Agnes, who's also going to play a little role in the in the proceedings. So the next day, set against a slow off-key church bell chiming a Christmas carol, Claire's father waits for a daughter who will never arrive. Claire's father is a strange character. I know what they're doing. He always reminds me of Les Nessman from uh, WKRP. <laughs> oh, the humanity. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know who I thought of when I, when, I, when I saw him was from Silver Bullet, the, old guy, or the young guy playing an old guy? Uh, yes. Yeah, so that's that's who I I couldn't I couldn't shake it. It's it's a strange like I get what they're trying to do with this character. They're trying to say he's uh, he's very conservative. He's a very sort of um, 
stuffy, uh, tightly buttoned up guy. But he reads in this like really anxious kind of nebbish, jumpy way where you're like, he seems too old to be her father for one thing. But he's like 70s old, so he could be like 42. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. He's a a spry 35. Yeah, he makes a lot of weird choices where it's like he just seems pissed off from the moment he arrives in a way that I don't know. Like it's the like if a uh, religious conservative sent their child to NYU yeah. and showed up and they're like, what do you mean you're in the theater department now? And it's, like, yeah. it's, it's a weird like it doesn't quite come across the way I think that they wanted it to. He's fine, but he just made they make a lot of weird choices with this character. Yeah, yeah, I. I could see that his whole I don't, thing. Maybe is, they just don't have enough room to convey, uh, you know, arch conservative in this way that they want to. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. So he's struck. Eventually, he's struck by a snowball, thrown by children. And then their chaperone comes over to apologize, directs him to the sorority house, and, and then the chaperone says, "Yeah, well, I said I was sorry." <laughs> that's that's right. Yep. You're going to get a lot of that in this because uh, about about uh, something like 65% of the cast had to be had to be Canadian actors. So they actually he said Bob Clark says that they they wanted it to be neutral. They didn't want like a, there's an American flag at some point in this movie. Like they yeah. wanted you to think it's in the U.S. And he was like, I don't know how we were supposed to do that. We're in Canada. Like, oh, and, and we're and, in. He's like, you know, uh, outhouse. Uh, there's a fucking hockey scene. Like, yep. Like there is dudes on snowmobiles. Yeah. It's this movie is super Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. So when he arrives, he, a dude who really needs to chill the fuck out, finds the place objectionable, decorated with lewd hippie posters as Mrs. Mack assures him that it's all good. Uh, Even this posters feel a little bit. Well, no, the one with the old lady giving him the finger, that's feels very seventies, but a lot of the posters feel very, the way this house is decorated is very strange. Yeah, because there's 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 one that's really kind of present throughout all of it, and it must just because it's it, it's in the main room. But it's that that um, astrology one. Yep. That that uh, Barb is always seems to be shot against. Yep. And then there's that in that one in that room because it's not really clear whose room we're in. But there's that poster where it's like a peace sign by like a ring of flowers and like two people fucking in the middle of it. Yeah, I think that's Claire's room. Okay. And. But that's the one that's like, a lot of this shit feels very 60s to me. Yeah. I mean, it is that, 1974. Yeah. But that that poster in particular. But I, I do love the old lady one. It's very it's very funny. Because yep. I've seen that image before of her, like, given the finger. But I have not seen the rest of the poster, which is, like, a series of, like, side-by-side shots of her sort of, like, getting to that point. It's very, it's very cute. So on her own, getting ready to leave, Mrs. Mac bitches about his stupid, unrealistic expectations. She says these broads would hump the Leaning Tower of Pisa if they could get up there. And then suddenly, which I think is interesting to to present them in this way because you know the the moral purity of women in horror will become a big issue in the eighties. But this is part of real like uh, making them fully realized characters is like yeah they're women in college they're probably having sex with people. We know that they all have boyfriends. Like it's, it's again, this, it's a real, one of the things Bob Clark really wanted to do and was really important for him to do was to present them as realistic people. And I think he does. I mean, they're, you know, they're a little bit, they're stereotypes of characters, like of personalities Yeah. because they each have like, you know, in, for the most part, a lot of people are pretty much just the fucking same, but these are each very distinct personalities. But I think beyond that, 
they are pretty realistic. And he, I think he did a pretty good job of that. Yeah, in spite of, like, I think that it's it's natural as you're writing genre movies to sort of drive towards uh, stereotypes. Because, like, stereotypes don't necessarily have to be a bad thing. They're broad sort of characterizations of people and, and personality types that each one of us can kind of gravitate to, towards. Yes. And so even though they're, they're stereotypes each one of them does still have this like very well-defined internal landscape. So like, you know, they're, they're stereotypes, but they're stereotypes with very rich backstories that are very skillfully communicated in ways that are not obvious, but you still learn about them as the movie goes on. It's just, and I would argue the one who's the least fleshed out is Jess. And, and that's probably because she is the protagonist and we're supposed to kind of project ourselves onto her. So yeah. she has to be a little bit blank in that way, just sort of like the way Laurie Strode has to be a little bit bland because we have to be able to project ourselves onto her. Whereas yeah. the other ones, we don't. We're just supposed to enjoy them. And it's yeah. the same in this movie where it's like, these are all these characters. We can't really, I can't project myself onto Barb because she's a, you know, a, a woman who's very angry and drunk all the time. Now, <laughs> I am also sometimes a woman who's very angry and drunk all the time, but not all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to, to such a point where Barb's room has a Christmas wreath with like yeah. nips on it. They yeah. really want you to know she loves the alcohol. Yeah. So yeah, uh, as this is all happening, Mrs. Mack now hears the same cat sounds that Claire did. Except they're in, it, it's even weirder now because they're in the house, but they're not obvious in the house. Like you can hear them. It's as though they're in the wall because yeah. they're in the attic. Yeah. But you can tell that it's not, first of all, you can tell that it's not actually an animal. It's very close though. Like if you weren't paying that much attention, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think about it, but they're very distant. And again, it's that thing of being like, it's in the house with you, but you don't know where it is. And it sounds like there's something between it and you. Yeah. Yeah. So at the conservatory, Jess tells her boyfriend, Peter, that she's pregnant. Hey, hey everybody. Peter fucking sucks. Peter is the biggest piece of shit. He is God. a giant baby and he is terrible. He is played by Kieran <laughs> <Yeah>. Delay. <laughs> Of uh, yeah, from two thousand one, and apparently Bob Clark he wanted he kind of wrote this character for Kier Delay because he wanted him he liked him for his like robotic coldness, and he says that he really thinks he brought he did a great uh, great character he brought a certain madness to the character and it's like eh, I think of all the acting in this Kier Delay is maybe the weakest He's because kind the of character the is so boring and terrible yeah like he he plays lunatic red herring that is his role in this movie and there's not a lot of latitude with that so yeah. it's like all right i guess i'll just lean in and be like a mad villain yeah the, with the limits. Prob- a mad villain so the problem is that clark really intends for this character to be a a strong misdirect but it does he does not work and this all. is where you get into the weird pride of it of it all where he's just like he's so proud that you know if you pay attention you know that you'll know that peter's not the killer it's like you don't even have to pay that much attention to know that peter's not the killer like thinking back on all the times that i've watched this movie at no point not even the very first time i watched this movie did i fall for that and it actually kind of struck me later on in repeated viewings that like oh shit I'm supposed to think that Peter is the killer at certain points, but it yeah. just, it it's so non-functional as a story component that it, it, it took me a while to realize that. And so, I think it's yeah. also, it's, it's worth pointing out as a lot of other people have pointed out and people who are smarter than me have pointed out that, you know, Peter, uh, he might not be the killer in this movie, but he is 
probably still a killer. Like you still, you never lose that feeling. Even when you find out that it's not him, he still is a violent threat to her the whole time. Right. Cause I'll, I'll save, I'll save my, my observation for the ending because especially really, at the end, cause that it's really, bizarre. it really comes through at the ending that this guy is fucking unhinged too. And he does. I, the things that I think here, delay does do well is there is, he, he conveys a kind of narcissistic personality in which every, in every bit of dialogue he has, the whole thing is about him all the time. And as soon as she pushes back on him, like she does in this scene a bunch of times, he gets really nasty and aggressive with her. So he'll be like, yeah. no, we have to have a baby. A baby's a beautiful thing. And she'll be like, hey, Peter, shut up. I don't want a baby. And then he's like, why are you such a selfish bitch all the time? Yeah. And it's like, well, wow, man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he's excited about this. She tells him this. He's excited, but she's like immediately like, I want to have an abortion, which really upsets him. And my I, my interpretation of this character, but specifically this moment, is that he kind of gets so you're to understand that he is reaching the end of his his education, his formal education here is going to be expected to you know present whatever you present to become a, a pianist. But also he then has to go out into the world. And as we learn, Peter kind of sucks at the piano. He's real shit at it. And I've always interpreted this as like, he sees a baby as a way, uh, to, as, as he, uh, kind of an excuse to give up on school because a, that's yeah. what he eventually says is yeah, no, this, I'm going to quit. We'll get married. And it's like, that just seems like an easy out for him. This he's actually situ- kind of a hack. This entire situation is a fucking parachute for him. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's quite insistent that they, they have this baby because as we said, Peter is a dick. And then she says no, and he says, don't you ever think about anyone but yourself? And he turns on her so quickly. Like, yeah. I, I know Keir is a, a decent actor. He's fine. But, like, there are moments in this where you're like, oh, God, he's really creepy. Yeah. But otherwise, he's a little flat. You know what it is? It's his fucking hair. I fucking hate that. Oh, it is bad. That, that 70s shag thing. Like, God yeah. damn, man. P- apparently, people just didn't know that you didn't have to have shitty hair. Yeah, well. Anyway. At the PKS party for the underprivileged children's. Claire's father calls home. It is a wild party. It is a crazy fucking party. Claire's father calls home to report that he hasn't found Claire, while Barb, on the other side of the split diopter lens, gives a kid a glass of alcohol, and apparently not his first. Nope. She actually says, I think he's drunk, or she says, I think he's schnockered. And meanwhile, Barb's boyfriend is playing Santa Claus, and he is the most Jewish Santa Claus I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. No, that's Phil's boyfriend. Oh, right, right, right. Phil's boyfriend. Yeah. But yeah, he's the guy that I keep saying is uh, is Rob Tyner because of that yep. fucking afro he's got. So that night, Jess receives another call from the moaner, but this time it is seriously unhinged. Billy! He's, he starts Billy. to make noises at this point, though, where it's like, and, and, and as it escalates, they get more chilling, but they're like weird animalistic sounds because yeah. these are three non-actors. I mean, one I think uh, Nick Mancuso became an actor uh, right. and like a producer, but at the time, I don't think he really was. And one of them is Bob Clark. And they're, they're, I don't know if it's because they're not acting or they're not trained actors, but the performances they give and the sounds that they make and then the way those sounds are edited are so upsetting yeah. because they're so inhuman. But the thing, yeah, part of the thing is, is it's going back to the sort of the sound design of the movie is it's, this stuff is screamed over a phone. And mm-hmm. so it is, 
it would be like if I were screaming into this microphone where it would be really, not just really loud, but it would be distorted and crackly and shit. And so on top of that, it's also the stuff that he says, what your mother and I must know is, where did you put the baby? Like and they're switching of- from one voice to another almost seamlessly. So it goes from being a man's voice to a woman's voice. And you don't notice that it's not the same voice. Now we do at the end and I don't like that part. But I see. Here's the thing. I love that part. So I guess we'll talk about it when we get there. But yeah. So, but this is the thing is, this is the part where we start to sort of, we never ever learn anything about Billy. We don't know if Billy is even a real person, but there is a story here that we're going to get little bits and pieces of as Billy kind of like shrieks over the phone. And it's but you also don't know if, it, is it just crazy guy ranting or is this an actual story? And that's part of why it's so genius is like, you're, you just have to fill it in yourself. You can decide yeah. if this is the real, if this is actually the story. Now, I, I mean, the remakes, I believe they really lean into this, which so, is like, yeah. okay, way to ruin the whole fucking movie. Yeah, Glenn, Glenn Morgan's one has a whole, like, prologue that involves, like, Billy and what Billy did. So, like, fuck that shit. I know, and I know that that has got to be producer note stuff, where yeah. some executive was like, it, it bothers me that we don't know who Billy is. We got to Like, have that's the, the whole point of the character, is, like, what makes him terrifying? What makes Michael Myers terrifying is that you don't know anything about him, really. Yeah. He's just this faceless menace. So yeah. is this character. We don't, he's just a guy shrieking into a telephone. He could be talking about something that actually happened, or maybe not. Maybe he's just screaming into a fucking phone. But that's what makes him such an awesome character and such an awesome villain because he is a faceless thing. All we're ever going to see is a foot in an eye. Yeah. Yeah. So Barb, Phil, and Claire's father go to the police to report Claire missing. And uh, the cops don't take it too terribly seriously, which is pretty consistent. This is a really interesting introduction of the police in this because the the police and, you know, uh, up to this point, Clark has made a lot of like... uh, commentary on, on things like Vietnam or um, sort of cultish behavior in children shouldn't play with dead things. His opinion of police in this are very strong, but I'm not sure what we're supposed to make of them because the character of Nash is the sort of bumbling sergeant. Yeah. He's an odd comic relief, but it, it's not in a way that Barb or Mrs. Mack is comic relief. It's very different. He's very Keystone Cops-ish. Yeah. And it's like, are you making a point about policing or is he just kind of here to make uh, you know, the character of Fuller, the John Saxon character? Is he sort of like prop him up a little bit? more? I think that he's obviously he's a little bit of comic relief. He's a little bit of that to sort of be a contrast to Fuller. But I have a personally I have a theory about this movie's sort of underlying theme and that it really is. It's a movie that is mostly about the ineffectiveness of men it's about the failure of men and sort of the way that that the illusion of sort of patriarchy just crumbles when applied to an actual sort of crisis because none of the men in this movie really ever get anything done and a couple of them are even really kind of wimpy and wussy like Claire's dad like faints at the end of the movie and the the way that men are portrayed in this kind of i mean even with Fuller who is kind of the Hard, you know, the sort of furrowed brow, like we're going to get it done. Like even he fails in the end. So the introduction of the police is interesting. And but the gender politics of this movie are very strange to me. And it is, I think, maybe worth noting that this movie does not come up at all in uh, Clover's book, Men, Women, Chainsaws, which is an an exploration of gender politics in um, horror movies. 
And it would have been because I don't think it really meets what it's not. Uh, she probably had criteria for what she was looking at. And yeah. this movie I don't think meets it because it's it doesn't um, it doesn't have a kind of that kind of misogyny. But it does have something else going on wherein we are supposed to really um, we're supposed to interpret Fuller as this like he's very masculine. He's very uh, he's, he's not quite dirty, Harry, but like he's the competent one in the movie. Yeah. And even he, towards the end, he's like, he kind of gaslights her a little bit. He really he talks over her a bunch of times. And it's it's just a really interesting thing. And this is another one of those things that they never really follow through on, um, especially the character of Nash. But it it does, again, comes down to that that thing of, of like locals and students, because they do keep saying, well, you know, this is what happens. Like, uh, girls go missing and it's probably she's just probably gone with her boyfriend or something. It's that like, you know, talking about. Uh, the the local people talking about the college people. Yeah. And there's that weird class dynamic here as well that we don't really dig into, probably because it's not that important to the story. But. Uh, no, uh, but I also, knowing what I do about sort of like crime in the 70s, particularly when it came to like m- either women as murder victims or like children as murder victims, mm-hmm. a lot of the time, and for like a murderer like Dean Coral who got away with it, uh, horrible, I mean, one of the, probably my money, like one of the worst murderers of all time. Like he's terrifying, utterly terrifying because what the cops did when the parents went to them and told them like, my child is missing was the cops were just like, ah, they probably just ran away. Kids run away all the time. And it's like, well, are you going to look for them? Yeah. We'll wait 32 days until they come back or whatever. Some of that is that I think a desire uh, for uh, well, it's it's a resistance to the idea that bad these these types of bad things are happening, especially when it comes to children. Like because so I mean, pretty much almost exclusively, the murder of children has a sexual component that people really do not want to talk about. Yeah. Um. And, and but it's the same. I too. It's the same for women. It's sort of like we don't want to believe that these bad things are happening to things because, especially for men, especially men in law enforcement, it's it it signals a failure to have protected women or something. And that is really, I think, what the character of Fuller is trying to do in this, is that he is here to protect her. And he does it in a very patronizing way. Yeah. Whereas, like, we can't give her all this information because, you know, she might blow it or something like that. And it's like, well, if you had, maybe she could have been more protected. So, yeah, I think there is this really interesting, like, every man in this movie is making bad choices. There is one who is not. Um but he's not in, he's not a significant character. Oh, uh, Claire, Claire's boyfriend. Claire's boyfriend. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's really it is an overlooked thing that it's like they're either Peter, who is just outright uh, terrifying, or they're sort of ineffective in all these different ways to the to the point that they're putting them in further danger. And yeah. I don't know if that's intentional. It's not explicit. And I think he could have done a little bit more with that. But so this is another one of those moments where it just sort of falls a little bit flat. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, getting back to it, when the uh, when the cop asks for the phone number of the sorority house, Barb tells him fellatio two eight eight zero. It's a new exchange. F.E., you see, because back in the now, day. Now, children, here's the way <laughs> phones used to work. Yeah. Phones, phone numbers used to have uh, letters in them, which is why if you look at the number pad, they've got letters on them. That wasn't just for fucking texting and shit. Uh, but yeah, I, I do not personally, that must've changed when like, Oh no, that really, changed in like the sixties. The okay. Cause yeah. Uh, 
I have no memory of that whatsoever. Yeah. Like we always had, no, a and it's very home. regional. They they were it was they were broken down by like different, um, you know, where you lived essentially. Gotcha. Oh, it must changed. have had something. Must have had something to do with like the telephone infrastructure or something like that. Because we always had like the fucking ten digit phone number, you know. Yep. So yeah. So but now then she, uh, she says my was one of my favorite lines in this moment because he's he says something to her like would you shut up and he, she turns <laughs> to him and she goes you know for a public servant your attitude really sucks <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah the cop being a moron just takes it down so now Jess goes over to the hockey rinks oh, so good yeah to ask this is, the, this is the most Canadian moment in any movie because every single one of them has hockey guy mustache. Yeah, I love it to death. She has, because this, I, is like, this is like a real hockey team. Yes, yeah, they're they're firing uh, pucks at the at the actor who's wearing a spooky fucking uh, hockey mask. Yeah, and that that is Art Hindle. He is in uh, a lot of Hallmark movies. He's been in a lot of shit. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah, he hasn't seen her either. So now we're gonna put a little pin on that because we're gonna come back to it. Meanwhile, Peter performs his piano piece for a bunch of smug looking judges. And he's supposed to be having a hard time, preoccupied by what Jess told him. But this is one of those deals where I can't tell if the music is supposed to sound this way. Because it's like... I think it's a very, like, John Cageian kind of, like... Yeah, It's yeah. avant-garde, because he is pounding on the fucking piano. And it's clear that he knows how... Whoever's playing it knows how to play it. But he's obviously doing it in a very a way that is very distressed. Yeah, yeah. Because the look on his face is like a lot of sweat. And like uh, hard concentration, but like that piece, I'm like, is it supposed to sound this way? Like, is he fucking? I up? don't think so because they pan from one uh, judge to the other, and none of them look terribly impressed. Yeah. So back at the police station, enter Johnny Sachs as a distrust a distraught mother reports her 13 year old daughter missing. Claire's boyfriend this busts is, in. This is another interesting moment, though, because we learn this is the mother. Her, her daughter's name is Janice. And even Janice has a sort of, not an interiority, because she's obviously missing and we never actually see her, but she as a character is given dimension where mm-hmm. we learn more about her. So when they do find her, we have that moment of like, oh, well, that's terrible. Yeah. And she's never, we never meet her. She, we never see her. Even when nope. she's dead, we don't nope. see her. Nope. They find she the body. A, she, we never see it. Yeah. She's an idea. So this is another, another example of like a woman being given a lot more dimension for the sake of the story. Yeah. So Claire's boyfriend bust in, gives the cops a wicked hard time. Wearing the most amazing coat. That coat is awesome. He looks I like think, a goddamn woolly mammoth. I think I think even the extra on the Blu-ray, the interview with him, has something to do with the coat. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a hell of a it's a hell of a coat. And so, so what is what's super interesting about this moment though is so we've got the women from the college. And we've got the father who's sort of the wimpy conservative guy. And they don't like Nash sort of ignores them and he begrudgingly takes their information. Now, Chris, her boyfriend, comes storming into the police station and screams at Nash as though they know each other. Right. And then he's the one who is, and this is more of that class stuff where like he's the one who's able to make this thing move because then Fuller comes out and he says something like, hey, oh, hey, Chris, how's your dad or whatever like that? Like they obviously he knows them because they're all from town. Mm-hmm. And so we, it's it's unclear why this matters to the story. But he's the one who actually gets the investigation moving because yeah. he yells at them. Yeah. Yep. So now back at the sorority house, Barb. Oh, there's also this is where there's an American flag on on Fuller's desk. Uh, 
It's, it's a little tiny American flag. Definitely. Little tiny American flags for some, abortions for others. <laughs> and always twirling, twirling toward the future. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Barb is now very drunk, looking at a Playboy magazine. And she explains to Claire's father that there's a species of turtle that fucks for three days. This is supposed to be a funny scene, but there is something really tragic. I, I actually don't think this is. I think this is supposed to be an important scene, but I don't think it's supposed to be that funny. I think it is a little bit goofy because this is when she spills over that anger and guilt and sort of shame that she feels yeah. all spills over because she does. She tells this joke about watching the turtles fuck and she makes another kind of dumb joke. And you watch as Mrs. Mac. So her Claire's father never looks impressed by any of this. And Mrs. Mac and Phil look a little bit amused. But then eventually you watch that amusement kind of like slip off their face and yeah, start to get really uncomfortable. Their faces fall at a certain point. And it's like, and oh. that's when she says, you think it's my fault, don't you? And yeah. she sort of launches into this like angry tirade about how they think that she drove Claire away. And she just sort of starts shouting at them. And you realize like she's really shouting at herself because yeah. she feels terrible about what she did. And this is more of that like, oh, she actually is a really tragic character. Who doesn't, she doesn't like suck. She's not a bad person. She's just a very angry person. Yeah. And yeah. it really comes out here. And this is more like uh, um, Margot Kidder is just a great actor. I think yeah. all of them are in this in this moment, but like they end up kind of yelling back at her. And it's, it's just a really interesting moment where you watch it all kind of slip away and things are starting to get more serious because she's the first person who says, if she's dead, it's my fault. And that's where this is the first time where anyone has raised the possibility that Claire is actually dead. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she goes upstairs to sleep it off. It's going to be the last we see of her for a little while. So Peter now, back at the conservatory, dreams dash, I guess. Uh, it was as bad as I thought it sounded, apparently. He smashes up the piano because he's a gigantic baby. Yeah, and I'm guessing they're just going to bill him for the piano. <laughs> no, that's a very expensive piano. He's trashing. Um, so yeah, as everybody leaves to go search for Claire. It also feels a little less, that scene feels a little unnecessary to me. It's more of that like shunting you towards him as the red hair. And it's like, you know yeah. what? Each time you do this, it just feels really obvious. It's a little forced. Like, yeah. Yeah. So now everybody leaves to go search for Claire. And Mrs. Mack tells Phil that she might not be there when they get back because she's going to visit her sister. So put a pin in that. Now, the police have organized a search party in the meantime to go looking for Claire. So everybody's going to go do that. And it looks like a really, really cold night in Canada. It is a very, it is a very Canadian moment. Yeah. So Mrs. Mack getting ready to leave. Here's the cat sound again, thinking that it's, and the this cat is again wall. where it's more in the, it's, it sounds like it's in the walls. Yes. Yep. So thinking he's up in the attic, she pokes her head up to look. Now she doesn't find the cat. But she does find Claire's body by the window and turns in time for Billy to swing a big hook on a block and tackle, which catches her under the jaw and then uses the pulley to drag her body up into the attic. Which, I mean, this one feels like a bit of a stretch. Like, yeah, it would hurt. It, it might kill her, but I don't think it's going to hook. It's not a hook hook. It's like a pulley hook. Like, it's not going to rip into her head and then something he can drag her up on. <laughs> yeah. This is a little bit of a weird... It doesn't fucking matter, but... No, no. It's, it's, people do sort of point to that as like, well, here's another, like, this wouldn't work. And it's like, just shut up. Hey, shut the fuck up. Watch the movie. It's <laughs> Even me, just shut up. It's nasty. So, yeah, add another body to the pile. Now, Billy goes berserk in the attic for some reason. So now... 
just knocking that rocking horse all over the place. Fuck that like rocking Like a horse. maniac. Because he too is like, what is this even doing here? Yeah, he's like, this is a sorority house. Be better. Yeah. So the search party, meanwhile, finds a body. But it's not Claire, obviously. Uh, it's the body of the missing girl from the police station before. And it seems like Billy is on a bit of a rampage. So this is the... What, what, if you're not paying attention, you would miss this. But he has attacked two other women prior to this. So he has sexually assaulted them. I think one of them might have died. Um, this is the one who dies. This. The other one is presumed to have survived. So then now we have this one. And there's this great moment where, like, they find the body and people kind of come rushing over and, like, they, you know, they look uh, a little upset, obviously. And then Janice's mother comes over. And just as she's about to scream, they cut from her to the phone. Yes, because the phone is ringing at the sorority house in time to pick up uh it's it's Jess she's going to pick up another call from Billy and it's more and this of is that. where they start to get really wild like just unhinged screaming yeah yeah and it, it all of it is all of it has a consistency to it there's uh somebody named Agnes there's a missing baby there's Pretty some parents nice. uh parents your father and I must know what he did with the baby and and Billy who is filthy filthy Billy we keep hearing about but we never, ever get the full story, if there even is a full story. Well, it's because, you know, don't don't tell what we did, Agnes. <laughs> Agnes. Specifically says that. Yeah. So Jess makes another call. The camera ominously pans left to show us a pair of legs coming down the steps. Real 70s looking shoes. Real 70s shoes with like the flared, flared, flared uh, denim jeans. She turns to find that Peter has been in the house the whole time. So here's the beginning of the whole misdirect thing. Yeah, and she's like, she's like, what are you doing? You scared the shit out of me. And he's like, well, I got tired of waiting and I had a little sleep. And I'm like, that, nobody says a little sleep. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. You psychopath. Yep. So she's on the phone with the cops trying to find out what can be done about the phone calls. And guess who doesn't take her seriously? Mm-hmm. So here's like the thing. Sergeant Nash. Yeah. So Peter dreams of being a concert pianist dead. Decides that decides that he and Jess are going to get married, and that's just all I, there is all to it. I'm just gonna say they cut to the Christmas tree in this house. It is a fucking weird tree, right? This Christmas tree. This is why houses would catch on fire so often. <laughs> I mean, this thing is draped in what looks like a like fake spider webbing from Halloween. Yeah, like wisp, wispy tinsel. Yeah, like this thing is a, it is a fire trap ready to go. And this is at a time when literally everybody smoked indoors all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, here's the thing about this getting married thing. Just doesn't want to get married. She's got plans of her own and her rationale for not wanting to marry this clown are pretty solid. If you ask me. Now we're never going to find out what those plans are. It doesn't no, matter. It doesn't matter. But, but I mean, but, you could have just thrown, she wants to be a journalist. You could have thrown that in there, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yep. Just, you know, give me a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, now this dude is put out. So Johnny Sachs, meanwhile, realizes that the sergeant at the desk is a gigantic moron. And the fellatio joke from before comes back around to pay off in a way that's pretty funny. Well, this so. is when they realize that the, the girl has gone missing from the house that is getting these calls. Yes. This is when he puts it all together. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So uh, meanwhile, like as this is all coming together, like one of the other detectives is in the scene, like cracking up in a way that seems like it's a very Bob Clark thing because you see that 
all over a Christmas story as well. Like there's always something that happens that one person doesn't realize is like a goof while everybody else does. It's a stylistic thing that I think is really fucking funny. So now Jess kicks Peter out of the house when they fight. Given the nature of the phone calls having to do with a baby and all that, Peter being very upset about the abortion, this misdirect isn't half bad, but, you know, it's pretty transparent that he's not. Because he does say shit like you're you're not having an abortion. You'll be sorry is what he says to Mm -hmm. her on the way out. Yeah. So the cops and a dude from the phone company drop by the sorority house to check on the phone. Uh, Now, there's an interesting thing that happens here, though, in that they... Jess has already met him. They've already spoken at the police station. And I think this is a, a, a question of sequencing, like when they shot this stuff. Yeah. Because in this moment, he they act as though they've never met. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, the phone company guy is the guy who sells Ralphie's dad the Christmas tree in a Christmas story. Yep. Point that out because I just watched a Christmas story recently. So he taps the phone and the cops put a guy in a car outside the house. He also, it. this is one of the moments where you, you really notice that he talks over her a lot. Like a the, lot. The phone guy says, asks her a question, and and Fuller jumps in and like talks over her to provide an answer. Right, and it's a very key detail because what we find out is that there are two there are two lines in this house. There's the one that the girls keep keep calling on, and then there's a phone in Mrs. Mack's room that's on an entirely different line. So, but but yes, Fuller provides that detail to the phone company guy and co- completely overlooking the fact that it's a possible like vector for calling the girls. Although because it's not, it's not the same phone line. And that's, I think that's, I don't know if they make a point of saying that. Like if, if they just had two phones, if you have two phones in your house, you can be talking on the phone. I can pick it up and hear that conversation. Yeah. If you have a separate line. No, that's, I can that's call you. On that is, that. That is what he, he, that's them sort of planting that seed is there is an, I, there's an option in this house that they could be calling the house from the house. That's the the whole thing there. Cause I'm sure that in a lot of, this was a really unusual idea for a lot of people at the time. Cause like if you had multiple phones in the house at all at this time in particular, pretty unlikely telephones were wicked fucking expensive. But yes, if you These did, might be the ones that the phone, the, the phone company actually gives you. Okay, yeah, that's that's you also would get a, you'd get those big chunky blocky. Yeah, phones. but yeah, at the time, like yes, if you, there were two phones in the house and somebody was on one talking and you picked up the other one, you would hear the conversation. Like that's that's how this worked. Like you couldn't you could not call your own house from a phone on that number. Right. So that's them sort of saying like here's here's where the killer could be calling from, but they don't obviously that's not a possibility at the moment. It's just them going. We're going to call back to this later on. So, uh, yeah, now they got the uh, they got Peter lurking in the dark outside of the house as well. Just Look, a normal, normal thing guys do. Yeah. Looking cold as hell because he's just wearing that fucking cable knit sweater. Yeah, dead he a winner. one of those fucking woolly mammoth coats. Yep. Dead a winner in Canada. So Phil, who is now tired and kind of sick, she goes up to bed. And there's a bunch of quick cuts around the different locations to remind us what's going on. We're waiting for Billy to call so the phone company can trace the call. The cops are waiting, too. And Jess is waiting by the phone. And she's been given, uh, like, a directive because they have to, like, it's going to take a little time to trace where the call is coming from. She has to keep him on the line, which is a deeply upsetting prospect for her. But that is an awesome moment, though. Yes. 
So Billy now comes down and he makes his way to Barb's room, fixating on some crystal decorations. Chief among we're gonna them. Call, we're going to call it Chekhov's glass unicorn. Chekhov's glass unicorn. Now, meanwhile, downstairs, Jess hears Barb gasping very suddenly and runs to check on her. Now, we're to think that she's being attacked, but she's actually having an asthma attack. So Jess gives her her inhaler. This feels like a weird contrivance, though. Is like, is it only because she had to make noise in order to get her attention? Is that the only real, like, why give her asthma? It seems unnecessary. It seems like a weird character. It's another, it's like, another, it's another misdirect. You're supposed to go, oh, he's getting her. And then, you right. know, Jess. So she has to do something that sounds like an, like an emergency. Yeah. So this is how else to do that. But this way, right. This gets Jess to run to her. So we go, oh no, don't go in there. She, you know, she's going to get killed. Uh, but I think it would have been better. If she drunkenly fell out of bed. <laughs> Vomiting on the floor. Mm-hmm. So she thinks she had a nightmare. She dreamed that there was a stranger in her room. So now, outside, some carolers show up as Barb goes back to sleep. And Jess is distracted by the carolers, so Billy makes his move again. And he whispers the carolers to- are an interesting bit here, because they, they are an element that is in sort of direct opposition to all of the chaotic noise. Right, because it's, it's, there's, it's, a, it, they're good singers, it's a melody, uh, it's a, a well-known Christmas song. That it's like singing. one of the few moments you get actual music in them. Yeah. And, and it's pleasing to the ear. It's like she gives, because she has this kind of dopey look on her face as she's watching them. But it's also, this is like the first moment where she's not living in like absolute tension and terror. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they're going to do with this is they're going to put the violence up against this. Because what he ends up doing is Billy gets into a room. He whispers uh, to her as if she's someone named Agnes. He says, it's me, Billy. And he grabs the unicorn and he raises it. And this is one of the movie's most iconic scenes. Billy is silhouetted against the background, but there is a single shaft of light on his left eye and he looks fucking frantic. Which is amazing because when it will also come back to that again later on. Yes. We are also only ever going to see that same eye. Yeah. And his eye, I don't know. You, I don't you know can sort of see it here. I don't know. It might just be like the, the lighting eyes. and the color of his eyes because it looks red. It looks red. Yeah. There's and this like is where halo. you get a lot of that. You get that kind of uh, jalo influence here where there is a lot of washing of, of red light in this. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, this is um, this is a movie that has like little stylistic flourishes like where in Italy, like the jalo is a wash in like crazy artistic, you know, operatic mm-hmm. touches throughout that's what makes them jelly uh, here like clark does it but like sparingly and so each one of those has an impact and like this is one of those mo- like those moments like this is why like some posters fixate on this shot like certain products of merchandise fixate on the shot like it's very characteristic of the entire movie like if you've seen this you know what i'm talking about you can see it right now i don't even have to describe it to you uh, but yeah, he stabs the shit out of Barb with Chekhov's glass unicorn while the children sing. Yeah, they they cut they keep cutting back and forth in this really kind of awesome way. Yeah, and so now with Barb dead and the children ushered off, the phone rings again, and they begin to trace it. And Jess has to keep Billy on the line long enough. Well, the, the, the children are ushered away because they found a body in the thing. This is where where Jess learns because she didn't go with them. Yes. Look for Janice. So this is where she learns that someone is now dead. Yeah. 
And then as the children are being ushered away, she gives the woman money and the woman goes, your phone's ringing. And it's like in that moment, it's sort of like, oh, she doesn't want to answer it. though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's, like, she's avoiding it because that's fucking terrifying. But now this is this is getting to the point where there's now a it, like the calls before have been fucking horrifying. But now we're getting to that point where there are clearly several voices and a couple of times those voices call out at the same time. And, and so, that I don't like. This is the part that you don't like. Personally, I like it because to me, it doesn't feel like a mistake or a misstep. It I don't feels, think it is a mistake. It feels like there might be two killers or multiple killers or that there's mm. two people in play. It's just, it's given you a little bit more to work with. I guess I just, I find even if that were the case, I find it hard to believe that two people could be talking at that same like, fever <laughs> pitch yeah. to one another. Yeah. And also like, it just, it kind of blows it a little bit. Like the illusion is, is ruined for me a little bit because you can, they're clearly very different voices. Cause we're a woman. Yes. And so when they blend and they start to happen at the same time, it's like either he is now, I don't know, has two voices or it's this idea of like there's two people, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. But what the, what really there's a moment right now also where Billy shrieks something at her that Peter said to her earlier, which is you're talking about this baby like you're having a wart removed. It's just like having a wart removed. Yeah. And what I don't like about this, and and initially, my my understanding was this was a signal to the audience that this killer is in the house. This is when she should know that by that point. Because to me, the viewer, I never consider Peter the actual killer. Right, right. Bob Clark intended this for us to be like, oh, maybe it really is Peter. And it's like, no, bitch. No, the killer's You've already proven to us that the it's killer's not, in like, the house and he heard you guys talking. Yeah. And that should be a revelatory moment that is awesome. And it's sort of like, oh, it's just we're supposed to just think it's Peter again. Like, stop ma- trying to make Peter happen. Yeah. Like this, this, what this should have been like is this should have been like the moment in Halloween where Laurie finds Annie's keys on the floor. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately, Billy hangs up before the phone company can locate him. But this is what's great about this moment is you get to see how they actually used to do this. Yeah, he'd have to like because the little guy from the phone company is like running down the fucking stacks of of whatever I don't know I don't know how the phones work. Yeah, telephone I'm a scientist, but he's like running through these like like halls of phone equipment looking for the one that's ringing. Yeah, and so uh, you know they they miss it. He's just he's almost there, but they don't get they don't quite get it. So Jack talks just talks to Fuller about the call. And he sows, the, this is when, like, they're really starting to lean into this Peter's the killer thing. So he sows the idea that killer, the killer might be Peter. He's definitely not doing himself any favors and dissuading us from the idea. But this is what I kind of go back to earlier when we we're talking about sort of like the, the gender dynamic in this movie is from this moment on, Fuller becomes convinced that Peter's the guy. Right. And this is when he starts, like, even she's like, I don't know, because she doesn't want to face up to that. Like, that's her sort of struggle from this moment on. And so he is going to very forcefully thrust this idea upon her, and she never really accepts it until the very end, even though she's wrong. Uh, but, yeah. And that's one, that's one of the more frustrating moments is, like, we end this movie as though Fuller was right. Yes, yes. And so now Jess and Phil walk around 
Jess filling her in on what happened while Billy watches from a crack in the door. No, so this part is really awesome, though, because this is when I think they're sitting in the they sit down in the living room at one point. Yeah. Yes. And you can see. So they're, you know, they're in the foreground. They're talking to each other. And, and uh, uh, Phil says, you know, I, I don't like Peter, but I don't think he's a killer. Yeah. And in the if you look in the background, you can see there's a shadow that keeps moving, but it moves sort of with Phil as she moves. It's only when Phil stops moving and you realize the shadow is still moving that there's someone standing behind. Yes. <laughs> and I think yeah. that is one of the most awesome parts. You see it earlier on, too, that he does the same thing a little bit earlier, too, yeah. where see, it's like he's standing at a corner, but you don't realize it unless you're really looking at the corner. Again, it's Bob Clark's attention to detail. And for whatever reason... He is one of like fucking a, a very small pool of filmmakers who understand that you can just do subliminal shit like this. I think it's because he actually cared about the genre. Like, yeah. it's the reason why, even if you don't like Texas Chainsaw, because I'm not a huge Texas Chainsaw fan. I think it's a good movie, but like, I'm not as big a fan as some people are. It, you know that these are people who wanted to make this movie, and that is why it is such a good-looking movie. They're also very talented. Yeah, yeah, everybody. It's the who- same thing here. Like you know, Bob Clark wanted to make this movie. He this was like his crowning achievement. Mm-hmm. This was the time, the one he really wants to like. This is what I can really do, and that's why I think it works so well. It's like they're paying attention to all the shit because they're not just like, "Hey, horror is a quick cash grab. Let's just do that cheap shit and get out of here." Yeah, yeah. I mean, pr- exactly. But the, the, it's God. It is the thing that I I, I always try to sort of articulate is the things that get under my skin are not scenes of horror that sort of beat you over the head with with violence or special effects or anything like that. It's this these little things that yeah. you catch just quickly enough to realize that it's happening. And, and, and it's a potent enough idea for me to ruminate on and sort of yeah. fill in the I mean, blanks. This is that for, thing that people are always talking about where it's like, oh, you know, it's scary because your mind fills in the blanks, but nobody fucking does that anymore. It's it's very yeah. seldom that I see that kind of subtle horror, and I fucking love it so much. It's why I like this movie as much as I do. Well, that's also why, like, one of my favorite moments in Halloween is when, uh, uh, oh my god, I can't remember when Annie goes to get. She goes to open the the door. The door is locked. She comes back. It doesn't occur to her when she just opens the door. Yeah, that the door was the reason you went into the house was to get the keys because the door is locked. Yeah. Now the door is not locked and the windows are all fogged up. It's that type of shit. It's like, you know, in Rosemary's Baby, the worst part of Rosemary's Baby to me is when Charles Grodin calls her husband. It's these just tiny moments where you're like, this feels like a huge fucking betrayal. Yeah. Because even the guy who's supposed to save you just sold you out. Yep. It's all these little things. And this only happens when you actually care enough to craft a good story. And you're not just trying to like, because, you know, as we run into all the time, a lot of these movies were made by people who are like, well, this shit's cheap and easy and fast. We can just get in, get out, you know, make a movie where they were like, no, we want to make a chilling horror movie. Yeah. Like those movies evident by like the number of movies that we've covered, like many of them can, they could still be entertaining and fun and shit, but they're just not working on this level, which is a whole, like a merit unto itself. It's, it's just, this movie is. Because why bother? If you don't care that much to begin with, why bother with like subtlety and nuance? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, if he didn't, he hadn't gone into this movie thinking, I want to make a movie that represents young women as they actually are in this environment. Mm Mm-hmm. 
if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have a movie where you have these really kind of like fleshed out three dimensional characters. Same with Halloween. You'd yep. get Friday the 13th where it's like, I don't really give a shit about women in general. I'm just going to make a movie where we watch them get hacked to pieces. Yeah. Like, is it is Friday the 13th fun to watch? Yeah, it yeah. is. It's an enjoyable movie. But is it anything like this? No, no. not even close. No, no. This this like this is that that the filmmaker going the extra mile to really nail down and just communicate through like little touches here and there. Like it doesn't take much. It just, you've got to be fucking smart in the way that you do it. And I think that Bob Clark is smarter than most filmmakers. He's definitely way smarter than your average horror movie filmmaker. Well, I think that's also why the sequels to Halloween in particular feel so awful Yeah, is that you have a movie that is clearly made by an auteur who is very, very good at what he's doing. He's incredibly talented. You have everything after that are just cheap knockoffs where they're trying to cash in on something. What I don't think you feel that way. I certainly don't feel that way about Friday the 13th because you start off with that. You yeah. start off with like, this is basically just an exploitation movie made in a particular genre. And it's just going to keep going that way. So there is no standard where you're like, wait a minute, that last one was fucking incredible. Why are these such dog shit? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's probably would have had this movie been successful. That's probably would have gotten six sequels to it. And they would have been <laughs> fucking terrible. It pro- right. Cause it wouldn't have been, it, none of them would have been written by, by, you know, Roy Moore. Or none of them would have been directed by Bob Clark. Yeah. The only reason there aren't sequels to this is because the movie did not do well financially. Yeah. And it was, it was funded in part by a studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the phone rings again while Phil and Jess are in the, are in the sort of the common room. But this time it's Peter, and he's begging her not to have an abortion. The big old baby. Big old baby. I think what they're supposed to be doing here is he sounds kind of crazy, but not like Billy. So that's why this also doesn't really work for me in sort of putting forth the idea that Peter is the killer. Um, but yeah. But Phil- to your point, if if there are two voices, they could have they could have used that to this effect. Yeah, that's a good idea. To that's say if there's more than one voice, there could be more than one killer Mm -hmm. so even though because what this this essentially sets up is it can't be peter because peter was either with them at one point or when the killer when the phone call came in yeah he was there for one of them yeah they don't even they don't bother to use that when they could have yeah so now phil and jess go around locking the place down phil is on her own upstairs when she spots barb's door closing and the camera first we get the the uh, oh, wait, no, you're going there. You're yeah, there. the camera then ominously pans up to the attic hatch to show us that it's open. And then she goes in to check on her, and all we hear is a whispered, Agnes, as the door closes. And she turns to look at someone, and that's about the last we're going to see a poor Phil. Oh, you skipped the goofy Canadians. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was Which also- again, feels, it feels like a, another one of those moments of like the Hicks you know, in opposition to the, you know, sort of more urbane college girls. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like these two like country guys and the same with the, the cop or when they go to the police station too. Yeah. And he shot one of the cops. It's like, why are, why are these moments stuffed into this movie? Like, what is he trying to say? Because Bob Clark very clearly has things to say and he's, he is critiquing things yeah. throughout this movie. This feels a little bit like that, but it's like, but you, why are they here? You know what it is, is I think that these are supposed to be moments of levity uh, because he definitely, he has a per- very particular sense of humor that was very 
characteristic of the era, which is it's um, a little bit dark. It's a little bit edgy, but it's a little bit goofy kind of dad joke. Too. What I see is what I, how I see it is it's all National Lampoon and Mad Magazine. Like it's yeah. that kind of uh, it's it's snarky. but a little bit darker. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, Jess is now uh, the only living person in the house apart from Billy. She receives another call. This Bill- is when we start to notice that all of the noise is dropping out, not just because people are gone, but because it's getting very late. Yep. So there's not, the you know, throughout the movie, there's even noise outside, like on the street. There's just ambient noise all the time. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, the ambient noise is just gone. It is yeah. very quiet. So it's- when the phone rings, it is like a gut punch. Yeah, so that it's that it's that silence because again, it's not silence. You could hear the wind blowing, and it gets louder and it gets louder. And they even do it at, again towards the end as as the phone is just ringing and ringing. It gets louder and louder. I and there think, is, I think, there's uh, something to the the guys before too when they say the the goofy Canadian uh, search party guys. One of them says, "Just keep those doors and windows closed, and you'll be safe." And I yeah. wondered when when he says that. I wondered. Is that a kind of commentary? Because this is a, a moment when Americans in particular, but I think just North Americans probably in general, are starting to realize and have to confront the fact that there are people out there who will do harm to you and f- who want to for no other reason than they want to. And they can and will. Like mm-hmm. We're getting into that. We're entering that sort of serial killer era where people are starting to have to contend with the fact that like it's not just a random one-off thing. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's- like... You hear that a lot in like true crime documentaries, serial killer documentaries. Like, oh boy, back in the day in this neighborhood, man, we used to leave our doors unlocked. You always hear that. Yeah. And I wonder, like, like I wonder about that where it's like, just keep those, you know, and the joke in that is that it's too late. He's already in your house. Yeah. And so that with the sound design, I think is very, as a very deliberate touch to, to sort of make us as Jess feel isolated yes because now we are truly isolated the doors are locked and the killer is in the fucking house and your only access to you know the people who will supposedly save you or can supposedly save you is also the thing that is a source of terror because he keeps calling her so we know that yeah she can call for the police but that same thing that same line that lifeline is also the thing he keeps he uses to get access to her as well yeah so Detective Fuller, uh, or rather, she gets another phone call, and it's Billy again with more Billy and Agnes stuff. Now, Detective Fuller goes to the conservatory to find what's left of Peter's piano, and then they race back to the police station set to a soundtrack of Billy ranting. Uh, and But this time, they trace him, and we cut to see Billy hanging up the phone next to a bill for a vaudeville act of the Mac Henry sisters. Uh-huh. So now... Our sweet Mrs. Mac. Yep. So the cops tell Fuller where the calls are coming from, the sorority house. The call is coming from inside the house. And so they try Which to... always makes me think of that great Stuart Smalley. <laughs> it's your father! Coming, it's your it's... father, and he's been drinking. <laughs> and he's been drinking. Yep. Oh, wasn't that scary? That was scary. <laughs> So, yeah, they try to alert the cops stationed outside the house, but we see that his throat has been slashed. And so now Jess runs to the steps looking for Phil when the phone rings again. This time it's the police and they instruct her to leave. But she wants to get Phil and Barb, too, because for all she knows, they're they're they're, you know, still alive. 
And now the camera zooms in ominously on the steps. Just but like this is an interesting moment, though, because this is Bob Clark says he got a lot of criticism for this. And this is a thing that um, they kind of make a joke of in Scream is why doesn't she just leave? And he says, well, she doesn't just leave because her friends are still in the house. She doesn't yeah. want to leave her friends in the house with someone who could be a killer. Yeah. Like she's it's a heroic thing. And when he said that, I was thinking to myself. Is this a little bit more of that, um, you know, the the Siskel thing from before where it's like, well, we don't expect women to behave in this way. We don't expect women to, you know, be the hero of a story, especially in a, in a genre for men. Yeah, they're fragile little flowers and she's just going to, you know, react out of fear and run away. No, like here, her first thought is, oh, shit, I've got to get my friends. One of whom is drunk and the other one is sick. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the, the camera is... Joke's on her, though, because they're both dead. They're both dead. Yeah, but just like in Halloween, every good horror movie needs a staircase. And this one is working overtime. Because at the top of the stairs, the stair shot is actually really cool. I love it. At the top of the stairs, it's nothing but shadow. Yes. Yeah. So when Jess doesn't follow his instructions, he tells her that the caller is in the house. Because that's a detail that comes late. In, in this because he's not supposed to. Right, he's not so supposed he, Fuller to. Fuller tells Nash, do not tell her that the kill, the calls are coming from inside the house. And Nash is getting frustrated because Jess won't just leave. Yeah. So he finally shouts at her, they're coming from inside the house, get out of the house. Yep. So and she tries when she goes to the door, because another criticism is, well, why, what's wrong with the door? Why can't she get out the door? And it's a moment, the very beginning of the movie, where there's a problem with the There's a problem with, with the, the door, door. yeah. So yeah, she goes, she tries to call Phil and Barb from where she is. And when they don't answer, she, she grabs a fire poker. She goes upstairs to get them. And this is her, her terror is really amping up in that moment because she starts shrieking to them there. Yeah, there, and there's a lot of like slow zooms to fast zooms. And like the camera work is also really helping ratchet up the tension here. And so she, she goes up, she barges into Barb's room. And it takes, but it takes some work. To, I love this. It takes some work to get the door open. Mm-hmm. Like she is. As pl- if maybe something, something is behind it. Yes. She, she has to like shove it open. And when she, um, we're about to find out why, but first in a nasty tableau that kind of sets the table for slasher movies to come, she finds her friends dead, but also. And this is kind of how, you know, there's an, there's, this was an influence on Halloween because yeah. you basically get the same scene. Right. Right. And everybody else does it too. Like, the final girl has to go and find all of her friends dead, like in, right. in very elaborate sort of setups. So when she's in there, she's she learns that someone is behind the door and it's whispering to her. And yeah, because she, she just looks sort of to her left and she all she can see is that same slit of eye. Yep. Like it's just his eye and he whispers something. Uh, uh, Agnes, it's me, Billy. It's me, Billy. Yeah. And then she, this is one of my other favorite parts of the movie. When she pushes the door in on him, which, you know, uh, it would hurt, but he starts shrieking. Yes. Like a wild owl is unbridled. Yeah. Because he chases her while howling and and screaming, like, too. Oh, man. But I don't know what it is about that shot of the eye. Because something is wrong with it. 
I, I, it's the way that it's lit. Yeah, because you it can makes see, it look like he has a weird red ring in his eye. Right, because you could see like the pupil and stuff, but there's this like red ring to it that like it, it must just be reflecting something. But, it is. I think it's just the color because I, I I stopped it and was looking at. It. I think it's just the color of his eye with the lighting, and it makes it look like it's this kind of weird dark red. It, it makes it's him look very like, unnatural. Looking. It makes him look like an animal. Yeah, which is probably the intention. Because the fucking noises he makes from here on out are animalistic noises. Yep. And so she she still she like she gets to the bottom of the steps and sort of turns the corner and grabs her by the hair. And that part's a little bit weak, because if you're paying attention and watching it in 4K, he grabs her very slowly and very gingerly. (laughs) Because he doesn't want to hurt her. Right. (laughs) Poor Olivia Hussey. See, this is why you need Shelly Winter. She'll just grab a bitch right by the snatch a wig. <laughs> snatch a wig right away from her. So yeah, he's, he chases her. She gets away, um, but she runs and she hides in the basement. She locks the door behind her. And he tries for a while to sort of break it down. But then we hear him just stop and the noise yep. and the animal noises stop. And we hear him walk away and a door closes. And it is dead silent from then on. Yeah. And so now the police are. The basement's an interesting thing, too, because it's like it is like the attic. It is just full of crap. Yeah. I get the feeling like so tight in there. I get the feeling like that's just what attics and basements used to be is people just threw all their shit there. That's Uh, what I put in my basement. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, my my basement is just all the stuff I don't have a place for. So, yeah, my attic is even fucking worse. I mean, if, if they shot this in my house, Jess would be hiding among tons and tons of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys. Oh, yeah. Boxes and boxes of comic books. And <laughs> Yeah. So outside the basement. But she, she lives in a sorority house, not the house of a gigantic nerd. <laughs> so outside the basement window, uh, Jess sees a shadow of somebody looking in. And he calls to her and she realizes that it's Peter. Now, like a normal person, he kicks his way through the window. And because she is in. very clearly terrified. She's clutching a fire poker. She's like crouched, cowering in the corner. Yeah. And he's like wiping. And then it's just like, well, you know what? Let me let myself in. He's, <laughs> but he's talking. This is why it doesn't make sense. Because we've already established that he is not the killer. Yeah. So – why then does he break it through the window? Well, the door is locked, so I guess that yeah. Know, and she's but not still, really answering but him. Still. But the way he comes in and he's just like, Jess, what are you doing? And it's like you have been a fucking lunatic since the beginning of this movie. And I, you, I mean, you literally just kicked your way in through a window. Yeah. And I, it it, it kind of makes me wonder. I, it, they're leaning into again. He is he's still a bad person. He might not be the killer, but he's still a bad person. Yeah, and he is still a threat to her. And he, in this moment, he feels very threatening. But to what end is he doing that? It doesn't uh, right. really make a lot of sense. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, she hides from him, and she and he finds her cornered. And then we cut away. And so when, when the police finally arrive, we hear her screaming from the outside of the house. And when they find her. We see that she has beaten Peter to death with the poker. But she is still holding him like his head is in her lap. It's still like, I don't know. It's a very interesting way to end the shot. I think I think not showing this this death was a smart choice. Yeah. Because yeah. he didn't want to make a bloody movie anyway. It's right. kind of like Halloween. Like they don't that's not really what they're trying to do. But I think the fact that she's holding him in that way, that's very it's intimate and it's kind of loving in a strange it's, it's way. It's like she's comforting him. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. And like, if you didn't, if you weren't really paying much attention, you wouldn't even realize that he's dead. Yeah, because he looks like he's just kind of resting. 
Even though there's yeah. like blood on his on his yeah. head from his nose and stuff, but yeah, Cle- he is clearly dead. But it's just the way that it is framed is communicating a whole bunch of different ideas. Yeah, I for one am pleased with his death. Yeah, fuck Peter. <laughs> He's not the killer, but this character fucking sucks. Yeah, it, the world is a better place because if it wasn't her, he'd be lording his power over some other poor woman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now we cut upstairs sedated jess is placed in her bed while the cops wrap up the case and set up a crime scene and claire's father passes out the cops hurry to get him out of the room and leave and they leave jess on her own they shut the light out as she leaves and so now jess is on her own and the house is empty the camera pans around to show us the carnage and remind us of everything that happened like like we see uh barb's mattress is now stripped Mm -hmm. of everything it's all bloody so nearing the attic Amid a soundtrack of howling wind and a ticking clock, we hear Billy laughing quietly. And then the camera pans up to the attic hatch and we hear him singing and the hatch opens. Now from the attic, we see the bodies of Mrs. Mack and Claire again as the camera zooms out slowly, showing us the outside of the house. The phone rings. Roll credits. Unbelievable. Unfucking awesome ending because it is so it is borderline nihilistic. One of my absolute favorite fucking movie endings of all time. It's like it's like we we like I, we've talked about it in certain episodes in the past. I do like a movie that com- we talked about it in our wrap up also about talk to me. I love a movie that will commit to sort of dooming its main characters. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Night of the Living Dead where you get to the end and you're like. Oh no! I love. It's not what I want. Like I don't want. I obviously I don't want every movie to be sort of bleak and nihilistic like this, where the only because the, the thing is, is what we've learned is, and I think, and Fuller says it. Billy makes a phone call every time he kills somebody, and so with what we're what we're only left to assume is that Billy is calling because he killed Jess, and so may I, I guess. Uh, that is that's all I can let he's she is left alone in a house with him he comes out and then the phone rings so clearly he kills Jess in the end that's how that's I I mean I just I like ending it on that's it done like I told you a story (laughs) that's how the story ends my my interpretation of this ending is that he comes down and because she is completely unprotected she's sedated he murders her and then makes a phone call to let everybody know. So if you watch the commentary, Bob Clark kind of addresses, he doesn't really say, but it's basically just like, because he says, people often said like, well, why wouldn't they search the rest of the house? And he says, well, it's the middle of the night. They think they know who did it already. Yeah, so yeah. why would they search the house? They can do that tomorrow. That's why they don't find them. They think but I they just like their killer. And then, then he sort of talks about the, what, you know, what the sequel would have been. He doesn't ever say what happens to Jess, but I like that the end. It's like a dead stop, yeah. where it's just like, who knows? Who knows what happens? Maybe that's what happened. Maybe not. Maybe the phone is just there. The phone is essentially like the um, that kind of uh, neighborhood shot at the end of Halloween, where it's like we just need something to end yes. it on. Yeah. And and because I actually the when he said when he starts talking at the end, I'm kind of like, mm, I don't know if I needed that. Or the phone <laughs> ringing, but I like that it just sort of ends with like that's it, Ca- pure chaos. There you go. Yeah, I I think it is. Uh, that's just uh, that's how I choose to interpret it. I for some reason I always had a memory of the movie ending a little bit differently, where you don't hear Billy, but what you see is the hatch opening and then a light coming on for some fucking reason. 
objectively, that is not what happens. I may be confusing it with something else, but I love that ending so much. And so apparently, I mean, like, that. maybe it's just me, like, I'm the only person who sees it that way, because that fan film sequel that I mentioned before assumes that Jess survives. I think, I feel like we're just sort of left to believe that she does. Yeah. But... I think it's just as likely that she doesn't. That's what makes it so fucking great. Is like it, 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 It's like a lot of the other shit where it's like, well, you decide. Yeah. You decide what's wrong with these people. And you clearly, decide why he's crazy. What you know, like Clearly that ending works because here we are with two vastly differing interpretations of the way that that movie ends. But and we, yet we both experience the movie as the greatest thing ever made. <laughs> I don't know if I think it's the greatest thing ever made. But it's it's definitely a movie that I hold in very high. All right, I don't think it's the greatest thing ever made. I I maintain that it is my favorite movie of all time. Sure, I think yeah. it is brilliantly tense. I think it is everything is executed so perfectly. There are bits and pieces that don't really work. The fact that he's trying to sell you a mystery when it is very clearly not a mystery. Yeah, that's a little bit dumb. But those things are so forgivable when everything else is so so beautifully done. Yeah, like my my whole feeling on the Peter thing is. You need someone to misdirect you. You you do, but we with or without him, the movie is the same movie. Yeah, uh, it's it. It's well, just, I mean, maybe not. I think he does do something. He does contribute to the to sort of the critique of gender in this movie in general. Yes, because he is the extreme of it all. Right, he is this domineering, controlling person who is literally trying to tell her what she can and cannot do with her. But he's a Republican. Yeah. Um, he is the extreme of that, whereas, you know, Fuller is is not too dissimilar. He's just a different presentation of it. He's another man. So I think he does give something to the story. He's just not essential to the story. Right. He, like, I mean, he's, he's a key part of sort of like where everybody else kind of gets these little, these little character beats that flesh them out in very rich ways. He's... Jess's version. And this is the reason that we get more of that is just because Jess is the main character. So, and I mean, she needs something to stand up to. Yes. You know, vis-a-vis the abortion B plot. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe he could have just, you, one gets the feeling that Bob Clark saw 2001 and was like, I want to put that guy in something. Yeah. I'm going to put him in this. Yeah. Like he just sort of got, he was determined to put him in this movie, even though he's not really all that nice. He could have been a voice on the phone. Right. Right. Which, well, that might have been an interesting storytelling touch since the yeah. phone is central to this movie. Yeah, he's just not all that necessary. But I do think he does bring something to that gender thing. I, and, I mean, the I, the critique of gender, I feel like, is a little bit ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like most things, Bob Clark is a heterosexual man making movies in the 1970s. Uh, his worldview and his his experience of of the world in general is going to be that of a white straight man making movies in the 70s. He's very progressive in a lot of ways, but I feel like some of this might be unintentional. That like after the fact in retrospect he's like, "Yeah, that was what I was trying to do, wasn't it?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I, there are some ways in which Jess is kind of a wishy-washy character. Like she's supposed to be this empowered young woman at the same time, she has this shitty, abusive boyfriend. Now, that's not to say that empowered young women can't and don't have shitty boyfriends. A lot of them do. But in terms of presenting this woman to us, he seems a little bit out of character for her because she's so quick to be like, uh, no, Peter, that's what I'm going to do. And it's like, if you're with this guy all the time, you would be having these conversations 
Right, right. She would probably be a little bit more conflicted. Um, and yeah. maybe a little more easily manipulated because he is but very she is so hard on like, no, I'm doing this. Yeah. And like you, you wouldn't have gotten to this point with him probably. Yeah. Because she is such a sort of a self-possessed, you know, uh, she has a lot of uh, autonomy in this and agency in this. And she doesn't seem to have any trouble or reluctance in exercising that. And yet they keep having these, like at a certain point long before this, she'd be like, you know, what? I think you need to fuck off. Yeah. I'm going to find a better boy. Because at no point is he charming, is he anything other than this kind of like uh, controlling, menacing man. Yeah. yeah. Like there's no there's no insight into why would you be dating him to begin with? So she does come across sometimes as a little bit like, mm, I don't know, it's just a little like a little wishy-washy. Yeah. Yeah. What she needs is a boyfriend like Claire's boyfriend. Yeah. A hockey I mean, playing man. He is, he is, and that's the other part that is like a little bit unresolved. It's like, what is all the weird class stuff in this movie? And is it just, it's just like, this is a reality of campus and sort of small town college life. I, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think that that was ever really sort of intentional. I think it's something that people have kind of picked up on because it's a tangible quality of the movie, but. But it is also, it's a constant presence, like lines like, oh, hey, Chris, how's your dad? Like, why would you put that in a movie if you're like, he's supposed to know them. Yeah. And and his presence is the thing that actually makes them take it seriously. Where you know he is a man, so that is another thing that they're taking it seriously. And he's one that is familiar to them. Whereas like uh, Claire's father is a sort of like effete out of towner. Yeah. Who kind of comes in and they're like, well, who's this queer? Like that kind of vibe. Whereas Chris is a hockey playing, you know, uh, mammoth skin wearing beast. Yeah. From town, like there is a little bit of that. It just seems like maybe this was supposed to go somewhere and it didn't. I don't know that the story is better or worse for it. I don't think it really matters that much. Yeah. Uh, and I think that brings us to this question is how how relevant and, and how well does this hold up now? This is another one of those movies like Halloween, like Jaws, that like the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. Um, from here on out, like I could see myself like making it like an annual thing out of this and just watching it at Christmas because like it, it's – it's so fucking good. And giving it the sort of attention to detail that I did for this podcast really helped me see things that I have not seen before. And I've watched this movie a bunch. Yeah, I watch this multiple times a year. And every time I watch it, I see things in it that I have not seen before. Yeah, it's and it, it's I think it is always impressive to me. Yeah, always. It's it's very much on a on a on a level with with Halloween. Like it's one of those movies that I just. I don't just enjoy it. I revere this movie. Like it's, yeah. you, you could write, you could write a book. This on is it. a true achievement. Yeah. It's a fucking fantastic film. S- just cream of the crop. Love it to death. I think there's probably some aspects of it that younger viewers either won't recognize or wouldn't understand. I think a lot of the phone stuff is a little, will probably be a little bit weird. If you yeah. didn't grow up with actual landline phones and know how they work. Um, I think some of the gender and the sexual politics are a little bit like they feel a little bit dated. But I actually don't think they're as dated as other people might think they are. I think a lot of the shit that is happening in this movie is still relevant today. The framing of it is a little bit different. I think the the subtlety of the male uh, kind of patriarchal um, gaslighting, the uh, you know the uh, patronizing tones and the attitudes that might feel a little bit odd. But I think for the most part, this is still a very relevant movie. Um, I think maybe younger audiences are more used to having things explained to them 
then this movie leaves a lot of shit to ambiguity and it lets you decide what is what's happening and what's not happening. And I think that's where a lot of its genius is. But I think for people who are accustomed to having a full package presented like, oh, you didn't get it? Well, here, let me fucking hammer it home. Here's a 20 minute exposition dump at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like you don't get a killer explaining why they're doing something like every now starting in the 80s. But I think probably starting with Friday the 13th, you get the killer monologue about why they're doing what they're doing. You don't get that here. You don't get that in Halloween. You have Loomis to kind of fill in the gaps. A little yeah. Bit. Here, yeah. you don't have anybody. No. And I think it's I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant in Halloween, too. But I think it's a brilliant choice to be like, I don't know. You decide. Doesn't matter. Because that is really what it's about. Like, this shit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter where he goes. That's what really kind of lies at the terror of the sort of fascination with serial killers is because they're impossible to catch because they don't follow a sort of pattern of victimology. They choose people for reasons that are very specific to them. But or not, maybe no reason at or all. Or maybe no reason at all. And that is fucked up. And that is still very, very scary to think about. Um, and I think it's what you see a shift in that in the 80s is that killers and serial, like slashers in the 80s in general, they do start to take that shape of like, oh, they're doing this because they're in this location. You know, uh, Betsy Palmer is killing people at Camp Crystal Lake because these kids are doing a specific thing. And I think I wonder it, to what extent does that appeal to people because it soothes those fears and anxieties over the fact that you actually can be killed by anybody at any time for no reason or any reason. Yeah. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration. You probably are. You're very unlikely to be killed by a serial killer, but there, that fear is still there because there is nothing you can do. These these young women in this house didn't do anything to provoke this person. I mean, you know, Barb's poking him a little bit, but he's already there. He's already going to kill them. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's not like she's doing something like, and that's the thing is they didn't bring this on. And maybe that's the kind of thing that, you know, people like Gene Siskel are struggling with is like, well, you know, I don't know how to package this because these are not typical women, young women in thrillers. This is not a typical killer. I wonder if this movie did not do well because there was no precedent for Mm-hmm. It was something very new and it is presenting a story in a style that is narratively very different where it's just like everything's open-ended and that's intentional. So yeah. I think that some of that shit might not really sit well with peop- younger audiences who maybe are more accustomed to having shit explained for them. Not that that's the case all the time. Now I think there is a lot of shit that's still, you know, creatively that is getting made that does do that. I think uh, yeah. talk to me is one of the ones that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that might be a, a bit of a stumbling point is like there's just some stuff that you if you're not accustomed to filling in the gaps yourself with your imagination, it might feel a little bit like, wait, what? Yeah. Like that kind of thing. But otherwise, yeah. I think this shit is brilliant. Yeah. It's outstanding. 100 percent. I'm so glad that we did this. You know, I, I it helps I'm me. Really waiting great. all year. Yeah. Yeah. And we scheduled this one real early on like when we first started to like really formalize this and put a schedule together like this was one of the first ones that we stuck at the end of the at the end of the calendar oh so speaking of calendars what's coming up next uh well we are going to be back with this shit in two weeks we are doing the criminally underseen classic new year's evil new year's evil you want to know something never seen it it is it is a great movie it has uh uh, Pinky Tuscadero in it. <laughs> That's all good things are have. Yep. yep. Uh, but before that, we are coming back next Monday, January 1st, with uh, the debut of our new show, 99 Cent Rental. 99 Cent Rental. We got two 
We got a double feature, a double play coming at you. Two episodes are going to drop at the same time, and boy, are they doozies. Uh, yeah, we're wow. going to start some. If you have not heard the, uh, the the official announcement that we put out like a month ago, uh, yeah, it's in there. We announced it. But we're doing, we're starting with Enzo G. Castellari's movie, 1990 Bronx Warriors, which is Super good. crazy fun. Uh, and then the, the uh, baffling, bewildering sex comedy by Ken Handler, who's the namesake of Mattel's Ken doll, uh, a, a sex comedy called Delivery Boys. Yep. And if you're wondering, I wonder what that episode is going to be like. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I apologize several times at the it's, end of that episode for choosing that film. It's a lot of us second guessing ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's it's, experience, it's, a, it's a very exciting time for, for us because, you know, you're going to get bring me the axle, keep going uh, for, you know, every other, every other week. And in the weeks that we would usually be off, you know, you can subscribe to us, to, uh, to our other show, 99 cent rental, but also we're going to have the first couple, like the first month's worth of episodes will just sort of be thrown into, into this feed. So you'll get them whether you want them or not. Uh, and then, uh, but. Oh, but you also, want them. You want them. You're going to want them because they're fucking great. But uh, yeah. So you can look us up uh, wherever you get your podcast, 99 cent rental, subscribe there. So you don't miss them. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you in a week with 1990 Bronx Warriors and Delivery Boys. And then uh, in two weeks, we'll be back with New Year's Evil. Amen.